VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, March the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonz King is back in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with Fonz when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout. Get in the queue and on the air. The topic, up to you. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I'm not sure what the weather is like where you are listening from this morning. But, you know, it's, as Jerry Lynn Mackey said, it's sort of a dark, overcast, dreary old looking day out there. Yesterday afternoon, for the first time in a long time in this neck of the woods, a little burst of sunshine. And just like every single time, when you have a go-long stretch without a bit of sun, then you see a little bit and you feel a bit of the heat on your face, perk up goes the mood, and you know the deal. A few flurries today, a bit of stormy weather coming on the weekend, anywho. All right, so one of the stories getting some attention, and rightfully so, is school bus safety. So there was an incident where a Mount Pearl student, because of a malfunction, said he had a sore back, was brought to hospital for precautionary reasons. So... The issue here is, I mean, it's much akin, stick with me, it's like the ambulance service here in the province. It's so disjointed and fragmented. Some ambulances are owned and operated by the government. Some are owned and operated by a variety of different private operators. There's a huge disparity between operations and pay and wait times and all the rest of it. Same with school buses. So we've got a fleet owned by the province. We've got a bunch of different private contractors. There's been one notably in the news in the recent past who lost their contracts. And then it's the issue regarding uh, inspections. A few years back, there was a huge kerfuffle about inspections and some inspection documents that had been falsified. But in this case, this particular bus apparently had an inspection, like every bus does, prior to the school year. Apparently, there was another inspection done on this particular bus in January. But yet here we are just in the middle, late of March, and it spit a rear axle. That's a pretty massive malfunction for a bus that's been so recently inspected. I mean, I'm not the inspector. I don't know exactly what went on. But it is pause for concern. So the province, they do indeed have an inspection routine. So every single bus, as mentioned, gets inspected before the school year. Then there's a rotation of buses that get inspected throughout the school year. If you get further into the numbers, between July the 1st and October 31st of last year, 14% of inspections over that period, the buses had a failing grade. So there are different standards, whether it be restricted service or completely hauled out of service. So we have got to ensure that we're on the right track here with school bus safety. But when you have something that is as important, and regarding the safety of our school-aged children, or anyone else that rides any of these buses, We've got to figure out how it cannot be the landscape where lowest bid simply wins, and that's that. Because sometimes you get what you pay for. So if we're going to have to uh, have a standard across the board for ambulances, I would suggest we need a standard across the board for school buses. Add to it, and we were bamboozled for years, always told there's no need for a seatbelt in a school bus given the compartmental design of a school bus. But then we found out that Transport Canada had done reviews into the need or the necessity for a seatbelt on a school bus and proved quite clearly that it was indeed enhancing the safety of those on board if they had a seatbelt versus rely on the way the seats are designed, the compartmental design of a school bus. And, of course, that never happened and was never enforced or even recommended because with seatbelts, fewer people can probably ride the bus. So, anyway, you want to take on the school bus safety issue, we're happy to do that. Here this morning, and on the front of safety, 
I know there's work ongoing, and it's got to be expedited, because I just saw another story last night in my email inbox where this family, they didn't name the school, so I have no idea where this was, but they say their 14-year-old was jumped, took a few smacks, and of course that attack was fueled by the fact that this person told, tells me that there was a circle of folks with their phone out taping it. So emboldening the attacker, looking for their little bit of fame or infamy inside their own school or their social circles, but we've got to figure out the safety issue. Inside the schools, we're doing what we can. It's the parking lot and the playgrounds which poses a risk. So how that gets attended to, and this has long been the case, and we've never really made any strides forward, I think there's more attention given to it, given the issue at PwC in particular. And just imagine, you know, very young teens, one as young as 14, charged with attempted murder, and still more to come on that particular issue. So lots to that. Uh, sticking with uh, children and their safety. So I've seen a couple of these videos on social media, and I'm sure you probably have too. It's about seeing very young children walking around in the front seat or really small children who you can barely see their top of the head sitting in the front seat, people who don't have properly installed child seats in their car, and the recommendation coming from a lady who, Beth Ann Bartlett, she was here yesterday. She's a car seat technician instructor with the Child Pastor Safety Association of Canada. Children should be in the back seat until they're at least 13 years of age. So says this person who is a technician instructor, and she knows more about it than I do. But you see the videos, you know, standing up in the bus or standing up in the car, really little tykes, little farts sitting in the front seat, and they don't belong there until they're big enough to be there. Anyway, we'll take that on. Speaking of children and some of their safety and harm reduction, again, this afternoon, Munn School of Pharmacy is going to launch a new drug education strategy. It's being labeled the Drug Education Centered on Youth Decision Empowerment. A nice little acronym called the Decide Strategy. So they say through their research, they've identified a critical gap in education for school-aged children in this province with limited drug and cannabis information in the curriculum. There are some programs that are put forward, like the DARE program administered by the RNC. But we do know the landscape has changed quite a lot since uh, cannabis products were legalized some years back. So information is power. Information in this front is not in an effort to promote usage is to give you the facts and the details so between the children and their families they can make better informed decisions. Harm reduction is always the right play here. So we have these types of conversations where we talk about sex ed, sexual education, and or talking about drugs and other realities of life where you've got to be prepared. And if we don't give them accurate information, like the folks from the Munn School of Pharmacy and or teachers who are trained on these fronts, then they get their info elsewhere from their peers, and their peers probably don't know what they're talking about. So they're going to launch that strategy this afternoon. I'll be curious to hear what's entailed therein. All right, this one, this is frustrating, infuriating, and quite sad on many fronts. So we know that the RNC made an arrest at St. John's International Airport one day last week, picked up this guy named Charles Gillen, only 23 years old, and he had a big load of cash on him after he scammed a bunch of seniors. Now we find out that in a very short amount of time, maybe inside of three days, at least eight seniors were built of over $200,000. So, I mean, there's, it's become so clever, of course, with a layer of evil. It's not that long ago where the telemarketer or the scammer would call you, and there was a number that was so long with international country codes, and you knew full well this was potentially a problem. Then they were able to spoof a number so that the call looked like it was coming from where you live. 
you know, right inside your own community. Like in my neck of the woods, a number might come up with 709, 726, whatever. So that became a bigger problem for folks. Now, a very inexpensive and widely available opportunity for people to download a bit of software for the sake of a dollar a subscription for an online platform, 60-second uh, sample of audio. Now we have what is called the deep fake voice. All right. So apparently what happens here, and this happened uh, years back, but they went to your Facebook page, for instance, and they got the names of your grandchildren, and then with a muffled voice, they called it, Nanny, I'm hurt, or Nanny, I'm in trouble. And grandparents, to a man, to a woman, will do whatever they can for their grandchildren. But now it sounds exactly like your grandchild on the other end of the, uh, the, other end of the line. One lady who was quoted in the news story I read said she could swear on her grave that it was her grandson. So one lady got separated from $58,000 plus of her hard-earned money. And so what do we do to protect ourselves? Because the technology has outpaced our ability to wean out what we know is a problem call. Because if, if I'm ever lucky enough to be a grandparent uh, and I get that call, I'm going to be quick to respond as well. So what do we do? Most often, the grandparent would have the contact information for their grandson, Johnny, or their granddaughter, Jane, right? So you get the call, and you don't want to hang up. You don't want to be callous or cold to a grandchild who is in need or in danger or in trouble, whether they need bail money or legal fees covered or whatever. I suppose what we have to do is to say, okay, Johnny, I have your cell phone number. I'm just going to check something. I'll call you right back or something. Some additional layer of protection so that we don't see these number of scams continue. Because just imagine, they can make it sound just like little Johnny calling. And so a couple hundred thousand dollars. And that's only the seniors that have come forward. You have to imagine there's more out there who have been subjected to the same scam. I know people would be embarrassed if this has happened to you. But maybe still a good idea to come forward to the RNC and to report it to all the re uh, respected or required agencies to get this on tap. But then that scam, that is absolutely infuriating. Okay, let's keep going. Yesterday we spoke of the fact that the province was going to the courts to stop the privacy commissioner, Michael Harvey, from testify, pardon me, investigating the cyber attack into the Meditech system. Now he's recused himself. He rejects any claim of bias. And, of course, the claim of bias comes from the fact that he was an assistant deputy minister in the Department of Health. He also served a couple of years on the board of the Newfoundland and Labrador Center for Health Information before he was appointed the privacy commissioner. So he says, look, he gave this a lot of thought. He didn't see any bias. He was willing to proceed as an independent thinker. He says now he has all the confidence in the team that's left behind to take care of it, including Sean Murray, who has 18 years of experience with the commissioner's office. He's the uh, office's director of research and quality assurance, the technical experts that they've brought forward. But Mr. Harvey has decided in an effort, and I think this makes all the sense in the world for Michael Harvey to say, he doesn't think it's a good idea to drag this out because getting the report in hands of government and hopefully some information for the public is the most important part here, not his inclusion in the investigation. So good on Michael Harvey for doing what really sounds like the right thing for the right reasons. Okay, where are we going from here? Uh, what's that scrambled in there? Oh, yesterday in another pre-budget announcement, and that always happens, it kind of takes some of the steam out of budget day, which is tomorrow, of course. But Premier Fury and the province announced the creation of some additional 10 more family care teams. So they've relabeled it. Apparently it has its own logo and the whole bit because I don't know really why that's required. You know, we call them collaborative care clinics, so whatever we want to call them, they're the same thing. So 
10 new teams over the course of the next two years. They're going to spend over $21 million to do that. There's eight that are up and running in part or in full, which has cost the province some $14 million. So these care clinics, family care clinics, collaborative care clinics, they will have uh, a doctor, nurse practitioner, registered nurse, physiotherapist, social worker, pharmacist, however many they can staff up. So this is a good thing. They're working towards having 35 of these, which they say should be able to capture all folks who need primary care everywhere in the province. So these first 10 are going to be peppered around based on access to healthcare workers, population base, what have you. So they're going to be in Lab West, Port of Bass, Grand Falls, Windsor, Clarenville, Deer Lake, White Bay, Kitty Wake, Gander, Bonavista, Conception Bay North, and one another one for the St. John's area. Okay. In concept, these really sound like an excellent idea. And I think they are. But I don't think it's a problem for opposition parties to also speak up about how we staff them. Because that's been the key, hasn't it? It's one thing if you had a doctor practicing in their own clinic in Mount Pearl, then they moved to a collaborative care clinic in, say, Monday Pond Road, and the patient roster was lost in Mount Pearl, maybe somewhere added on in Monday Pond Road, but we didn't add to the system necessarily. So the strategy has been complicated. There's been a suite of incentives to try to bring more and more doctors to the province, whether it be from other parts of the country or other parts of the world, and or hopefully to retain doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and LPNs and everybody else in healthcare who are trained here in this province. So it just makes sense. And then there's a quibble, and a long way between the two numbers being discussed here. The Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, through the research company they hired, said there was some 136,000 people in the province without a doctor. The government says it's more like 50,000. Who's right? Don't know. But access to health care, wherever you are, is obviously top of mind for most everyone. You know, everything else you want to talk about, taxes and inflation and groceries or fuel or whatever. But So 35 coming, and this has all been uh, part of the blueprint in the health accord to get to where we need to be for access to health care. But, you know, people will ask, where's the money coming from? Yeah, okay. Where the staff cut is coming from, I think, is maybe top of mind for many, if not most. Now, here Yvette Coffey. I don't know if Ms. Coffey's going to have an opportunity to join us this morning. We've asked her for some uh, of her time. You know, all the incentives offered to hire doctors. And, you know, it seems that it's worked in Bonavista, for instance. They announced a $200,000 signing bonus for bringing doctors to Bonavista, New West Valley, and Bay Verde. Apparently, it's worked in Bonavista to the tune of two new doctors come to that part of the province. So the registered nurses union, and Ms. Coffey are saying, well, what about registered nurses? Because we know the impact that the, the absence of registered nurses has, whether it be the inability for someone to get a bed in a hospital, whether it be the numbers of people in a hospital bed that should be in a long-term care bed, but there's no RNs to staff up uh, in that facility. So this is widespread. She says, look at Nova Scotia, what they're doing for incentives and bonuses for registered nurses. So maybe Ms. Coffey is going to be able to join us this morning, and hopefully so. All right, uh, the pressures on our bank books. So the overall inflation rate in February in this country has fallen to 5.2%, and that's good news. It's the largest deceleration since April of 2020. You know, we were at a record, not a record high, but an all-time high in the last couple of decades of 8.1%, and that all feels good, but are you feeling the deceleration of the overall inflation rate? Because for most, you know, when they try to break things out here, like there's numbers reported in the news that take away food and energy, and that the impact those two areas have on inflation. Well, how do you take those out? Because we all need energy and we all need food. Food inflation is still about 10.6%. You know, there's lots of supply-side issues, whether it be a particular bug devastating crops or floods or droughts. So 
what do we actually do about groceries? You know, can't some of it be settled or solved with enhancing food production and security here in the province? Dan Rubin and his group at Food Producers Forum have done great work to compile the data with just how much is being produced here. But it's fine to tell me that inflation is 5.2, and that is good news coming down. But food inflation and energy prices, now energy has fallen, you know, almost 5% when we talk about gasoline in particular. But, yeah, anyway, it's been posed as very good news, but let's see if we can feel some of the good news. All right, so there's a think tank, and think tanks, you know, I'm not to say they have to take them with a grain of salt, but there is a certain bent or lean to different think tanks who have different political ideologies. This one coming from uh, an Ottawa-based think tank called Public Policy Forum, and the report is called the Atlantic Canada Momentum Index. And they say Atlantic Canada, the quote is, that has wind in its sails, that the economic outlook for the Atlantic Canadian provinces is better than the vast majority of the rest of the country. And in this province, they're talking about uh, growth to the tune of some 2.2%, basically because they say with more oil production and the consequent revenues coming to the province and individuals, that's based on Terra Nova getting back into production. But, of course, Terra Nova needed additional work as it was floated back from Spain. Not sure of the status of it. But this particular tank is pretty bullish on the Atlantic Canadian economy for this calendar year. And they point to certain things, population growth, immigration. But inside of this, they don't use all the measures that have an impact when you have population growth, whether it be through immigration from uh, outside the country or people moving to Atlantic Canada. Maybe some of that was encouraged, the report says, by the Atlantic Loop, or pardon me, the Atlantic Bubble during some of the pandemic travel restrictions. But they don't really encapsulate some of the additional pressures brought to bear. So we do know that population growth is important, or I believe it is. Immigration is important. It has a huge economic upside. But when the housing issues are what they are, when the numbers of people looking for health care are what they are, it doesn't make you a bad person or anti-immigration to factor that into the conversation because that's the reality on the ground. So some people are quite bullish, and if you want to take it on, we can do exactly that. How are we doing on the telephone there, Fonts? Let's get her going. Uh, just a quick one here. Another shooting over the weekend, this time in Torbay. I read a story this morning about just how easy it seems to be to see guns smuggled into Canada, notably from the United States. We're told that the vast majority of illegal handguns seized come from the United States, can be traced back to the States. So, you know, every time we see a drug seizure or what have you here, it always includes guns. I mean, that's part of the pictures, the cash, the paraphernalia, the drugs itself, and yes, the guns. And we have seen a rash in violent crime. Don't take my word for it. Stats Canada says there's been a 20% uptick. Don't take their word for it. Take it from the Crown prosecutors here who report the exact same thing. And a lot of gun crime. So while the government is using gun control as a bit of a litmus test and creating lists of banned or prohibited weapons that have been expanded to great lengths, still not so sure we focused in on the number one problem is keeping the guns out of the country at the American border because an awful lot of that seems to be the biggest part of the problem. And you wonder how many of the guns being used here in these types of crimes have come from the United States. So anyway, I want to put that out there. And it looks like the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, will indeed testify uh, before Parliament. But this is going to be in front of the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, not the Ethics Committee, where the CPC in particular wanted Ms. Telford to testify. And it's important that she does. You know, but here we are. 
everything's so hyper-partisan. It's, it's almost at the uh, position that it's ridiculous. Now, speaking of ridiculous, the Liberal members of that particular committee who have been filibustering for the last couple of weeks, it really equates to a bit of a clown show. There should be no such thing as a filibuster gobbling up time when there are important matters to be attending to. But Ms. Telford will testify before, I believe, the 14th of uh, April for a couple of hours. You know, both the NDP and the Conservative Party are claiming victory here for seeing Ms. Telford now agreeing to testify. You know, we've got ourselves a problem when something like election integrity has gone from the people's business to political victories being claimed by one person or one party or another. But I think that's good for all of us that Ms. Telford will indeed testify. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent, thank you. How about you? Not bad at all, boy. Good. Yeah. Uh, calling in this morning on a capacity by which I used to call a lot a long time a while ago regarding what we're seeing <clears throat> right now in the news about school buses. Yep. Well, that one certainly strikes a note with me because not only did we operate a school bus company for almost 60 years, I guess you could say we were there through the, the good times, the better times, and then the times that we see now, which are absolutely terrible. Uh, school busing 40 years ago was a better industry than it is today. Because of what? Mostly because the operators that were into it could afford to be into it. Right now, what you've got is a situation where you've got lots of competition, and the entire way that they procure your school bus contracts for the children that are aboard those buses are by the Public Tender Act, where the lowest bid hauls the kid. And this is not a device of government procurement, believe me. This is not a uh, device of of uh, proper procurement of government-provided services. The Public Tender Act, in this case, for the English school district, uh, in particular, over the past number of years, the Public Tender Act has been used like a weapon. And by that, I mean right down to public bureaucrats, public public employees getting together to try and figure out how to stagger contracts in the same school district so that they could create the highest level of it, uh, of competition to get the lowest possible result on that bottom line for the price of hauling your children. Now, people will say, well, well you know, you, you want to get the best price you can for everything. Certainly you do. But... Believe me, that was never the intent of the English school district and, and previous bodies before it. And I'm not siding on one side of government, because right now you'll see a lot of politics being played 
first of all, the opposition is going to get in and try to find out exactly how they can mar somebody, I guess, with some kind of a mistake having been made. Then you'll have the, the government trying to justify how great of a job they're doing on inspections and everything else. When the entire system for years, 20 to 30 years at least, has been marred with the greasy manipulation of this entire industry. Like, I mean, they'd have a, a tender opening here on this side of the bay in Bay St. George. Like, let's say I lost my contracts. I got eight or ten buses sitting in the yard. Next week, I'd go over and I'd cut that to the bare bones to try and get my buses put back to work and try and take out another operator or whatever the case may be. Survival of the fittest is what the school bus industry has been for years. And the government themselves, the English school district and Department of Education have promoted this and have mastered this to the point where this industry has been crippled. You've got operators now, like I in particular, at one time, we used to operate, I think it was 70-odd buses, almost 80 buses. Then after mill closures and economies dying, more entrants came into the school bus industry. Lots of them came in and they bid aggressively trying to knock out competition, and exactly that's what happened to me. I would not follow the type of bidding that was going on that I knew you could not provide responsible school busing for. And eventually, they got my last contract. They knocked me right out of this business. For years, I was involved with a school bus operators association that we formed. I guess we had to form. Now, it got formed by the wrong fellow, and it got formed basically uh, with a bit of a black eye from the start. But we never gained one thing with government. I remember in particular, they stopped nailing us for school days. In other words, if you're under contract and someday you had a school day and it didn't travel, well, you gave back that, that snow day. If you had a, a, a snow day that you missed, you owed it for something else. They probably used it for extracurricular time or whatever. That was perfect. We traded that off, apparently. They were going to, because at one time, school buses in this province were older. Right now, the knockoff is 12 years. It used to be 14. The reason we did was because we tried to improve our own lot so that we could get a better situation. We looked for negotiated tender. Naturally, we all realized that we weren't capable of paying our drivers what we would like, and it was getting tougher sure. to, to find drivers because the, the remuneration was so low. Dave, do we happen to know, or what's the most recent numbers that you've been uh, aware of, about how much it costs per bus to operate from a private operator versus how much it costs the government to operate a bus that they own and operate? Government are accepting tenders from the private industry now less than 50% of the cost of running their own buses. And don't forget, the bulk of busing in this province is still private. It's a little, it's not... It's not half and half. It's probably 60 to 70% private. We just saw a number reported that 14% of buses inspected from July to October failed. Mm -hmm. That's a damn good number as far as I'm concerned because every one of them are trying to keep junk on the road. I remember because of the state that the, the industry was in and what we were getting for our contracts, I remember going to Quebec, Ontario, places like that to buy buses because 
they naturally had lower years of service that were allowable in these provinces. So great, we'll just sell them to Newfoundlanders. They haul Newfoundland kids in that. We'll take them off the road up here, they're illegal, but we'll let Newfoundland operators haul Newfoundland kids in them. I remember driving home from Quebec, hoping and praying that I would make it to North Sydney and a heap of junk that I had to, that, that, that was the only thing that I could afford to buy under the contracts that we had. And then I got to the point where I started saying to myself, what am I doing? i got to take this thing home and use this for another couple or three years. And it's a pile of junk now. So we tried everything in our power as an association to try and deal with government. And believe me, I've seen things and acts out of government that you would only believe on something you watched on television when it came to school buses. Before we have to go, so what's the solution here? Because, you know, there's always going to be some money attached to these conversations, but that go- that flies in the face of safety. So is the solution in your mind that the province be solely responsible for the school buses and their maintenance and their inspections and their ownership and operation, or is it a rejig in how we think about procurement in the private sector? Because lowest bid wins doesn't necessarily jive with keeping the kids as safe as they need to be. 100% correct. What the problem is here is 100% in government's lap. They, even down to the provincial inspection, they don't have the same level of, of inspectors that inspect these buses anymore. Lots of them that are out there inspecting buses right now don't even have a mechanics course. So you got what you, you're basically getting what you're paying for. You've got a situation now that is underfunded so bad that they can't afford to pay drivers properly. They can't afford to run a, a business that has a, a, an acceptable and responsible revolving maintenance program because the money's not in the system. Now, a lot of people say, well, what are you at that for? Not everybody makes that decision. I did. One reason. I was not going to be responsible one day for my pile of junk ending up in the ditch with a bunch of kids in it. And the way that I was operating, the way most people were operating at the time, was on a knee-jerk type situation. There were no school bus operators making any money at this. They were washing dollars. They were turning over. They had cash flow. That's as much as it is. And for the, such an important job, and in, in such an important transportation industry, what do we haul? The first thing in the morning, we're hauling your children. That's the most precious cargo that you could ever have a contract to haul. And it's treated like an absolute joke. And if anybody at the English school district wants to refute what I just said, then I'm going to tell you what, you got your hands full because I got my homework done on you fellas too. What this has been treated like has been something that they can save on the budget to spend somewhere else, obviously. And it's about time that it stopped. Dave, appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Take care, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, talk about getting things right. So I, you know, someone came after me a little bit in an email said, you know, how can you possibly uh, compare ambulance system to the school bus system? Well, there is some distinct overlaps here. It's fragmented on both fronts, and consequently we have different outcomes, different opportunities to, uh, for instance, retain the paramedics and keep bus drivers on. Dave just mentioned that, you know, some of the procurement strategy has been so that you can have enough money to pay the bus drivers properly so they can keep them on staff. So there are some distinct overlaps. Let's say it's the exact same. No one's saying that. Uh, let's take a break. We understand that some of the snow crab harvesters, particularly operating in 3L, are going to be congregating this morning, again at the DFO offices on the White Hills. 
there is a strange goings on here. You know, 3L and the associated zones outside of 3L, they have one biomass. Inside 3L, two. One for the inshore, one for the offshore. What that means for total quotas for the individual harvester, probably not very good news. We're going to talk about that, then we're going to be speaking with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Conway, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, rolling in, I guess, on the racket, I guess, going on with the boil mass down there, and I guess a couple of things just to show the, how DFOs got everything tied in a knot, I guess you would say, for a better word. I uh, I got to uh, <clears throat> tell the boys down there to keep going. What DFO was doing is, is wrong. I mean, uh, you don't know what's going on in the biomass. An imaginary line is uh, an imaginary line. So keep up the, the fleet and get it straightened out. And just to put in perspective of what's going on, you take our macro. You got us closed down. But yet the states are still fishing. Now that's all one biomass. So they're going to close us down and let the states keep fishing. And then you got the states turning around, putting things out like we got to have on this rope that's going to bust off so we lose all of our traps and our nets and everything else for wells that's not even here. Yeah, there's been very limited sightings of Atlantic right whales here, and not even during the season where those that gear is in use. The mackerel one is an interesting one because before Canada decided, Joyce Murray, Minister Murray decided there was going to be no mackerel fishery last year, it had long been referred to as a shared stock. So, yes. I mean, how which which one is it? Is it a shared stock or is it two distinct stocks? And people know full well it is a shared stock, and there should be a collaborative approach on it. Now, the Americans had a reduced quota, but they were fishing it. So it really doesn't make much sense when you factor in just how much mackerel was in the bays. I mean, we've seen the videos. You don't need to go too deep to find a mackerel. They're right there teaming at the surface. So I don't know. That's a fair one. Uh, the issue regarding snow crab, you know, precautionary approach seems to be a bad word in the ears of the harvester when, you know, if you stand back and think about it, caution needs to be part of the total allowable catch equation each year. But on this one, I haven't had anyone be able to explain to me in any form or fashion why all of a sudden in 3L there's two separate biomass and right next door to it there's only one. So why, what, what even drives that decision? I'd be curious to know and be in that room to, for whoever said, you know, because of this, we should call two distinct biomasses in 3L. I don't understand it whatsoever. Well, I don't either. It's like I said, now i got another one for you. Up here in 4 our tree, <clears throat> well, we call it the golf region over here. Or RST, okay? We closed in our cod last year. Now, we had no cod fishery at all. And science said if we had a fishery, it wouldn't make no difference. But yet they closed it. And now we have no no idea if they're going to open it again. Or when it's going to open. I mean, there's cod fish here. But all of our cod leaves in the winter. And it goes down past Port of Bass. Down in Tree P.S. And offshore boats is fishing. Now, they knows our cod mixes down there. So why did they close us? I mean, that's 
just another knot that you got put into it. And then you can go right back to the salmon fishery where you got St. Pierre, McLean, still fishing salmon. You ain't even got a river that the salmon spawns in. Yeah, that's a tiny fishery, though, isn't it, Conway? What's the total well, lava catch? Tiny or not, it's still a fishery that the fish is spawning in Newfoundland rivers. Yeah. And the Canadian government paid Greenland for five years not to fish it. And Greenland is still going with a commercial salmon fishery. Yeah, they never stopped when fishing the, or last. When the salmon spawns in Newfoundland and Labrador waters. It's the same as a trout. And we have no control over it. This is this is the miss the DFO is doing politically. There's no science behind it. It's political. But don't you think the Greenland issue falls on Greenland, not any Canadian organization, doesn't it? I mean, they refuse to play along and live up to their end of the bargain here. Well, what issue do it got with St. Pierre? The Indian got a river. Get a ship to water in. I mean, this is political. Once again, if the Canadian government had any teeth on what they're doing and wouldn't all done political, there'd be a fishery in Newfoundland. There'd be a, a healthy crab stock. They wouldn't be down trying to chop people out and say, oh, this ball mass and that ball mass, because there's imaginary line there and the fish don't move over that one. Same thing as they've done with our salmon, same thing as they've done with our cod up here. And the same thing that they're doing with our macro. And then they're being lit around by their noses by other, uh, by other countries who's enforcing laws that has nothing to do with us up here. But they're playing the line because they're trying to make the other countries and keep whatever deals they got made in the back happy. But it's not, it's not working out for us. Our economy is going down the tube as fast as it can to keep the other people happy. And, and, and like I said, the science is not there. There's no science to prove what's going on down there. There's no science to prove nothing of what, in the last five years, the DFO have done to cut quotas and cut biomass and say that the biomass is not there because they're not putting the money into it. I don't know where they're putting the money. But it ain't going into science. I mean, I've been to odd meetings, the ones that I can get to, and it just tells us that you haven't got the science to back it. Yeah, so, well, that's true. I mean, they admit quite clearly, whether it be because some of the new vessels haven't worked out the way intended, the aging fleet and the inability to get parts. I mean, even in the Capelin stock assessment, it's the first time they've done an acoustic survey in years. So the fact that there's not enough science out there is really a black mark on how DFO is doing their business. Their core mandate should be built on science as opposed to politics. Now, I'm sure, you know, the hardworking fish scientists at DFO have nothing to do with the vessels. That's not their fault. They can't do anything. If there's not a vessel, there's not a vessel. They've even entertained a new agreement here where they're hiring boats like yours to go out and conduct some of the science versus the millions and tens of millions that we've spent on vessels for that exact purpose. Uh, Conway, final thoughts quickly before I have to go. Well, I'm a crab fisherman. I really don't want to see my crab delayed. But I'm going to stand behind the boys down there. If my crab is delayed, fine and dandy. So long as the, the right thing comes out of this and, and, and the science has got to be what drives us, not political, and 
the boys are doing right. the right thing. And just one more little thing. Quickly. About the crab. Quick. Now, they're going to negotiate prices for us, and then they're going to then they're going to turn around, and when the, the boats leaves the Magdalen Islands and comes to Newfoundland again to sell their crab, they're going to pay them more again because that's what they've been doing for the last couple of years. And now here it is. They're saying that they got too much crab in, in their cool storage, but yet we can't get in so uh, outside buyer to come in. But the companies can take boats from other provinces and come over here and fill their freezers full and then turn around the next year and tell us that they can't buy our crab for a sensible price because their markets is, or their cool storage is still full. But it's not full from our crab. So they're buying crab from other provinces and filling up coal storage, and then we're the ones that got to pay because we're not allowed to have fair market value, and we're not allowed to play on the big field. We're held hostage on an island. So Appreciate the time, Conway. Thank you for your time. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's get to the break. Uh, when we come back, we're, we know there's been lots of pre-budget consultations. How much of those consultations actually makes its way into the end product, which is the budget delivered tomorrow? Of course, we will indeed have a budget show at 2 p.m. tomorrow. The information starts to flow once the finance minister uh, begins to recite what's inside that document. One of the folks who were consulted, the organizations consulted pre-budget, were the Employers Council. Jacqueline Sullivan is the executive director. She's next. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the executive director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Employers Council. That's Jacqueline Sullivan. Hi, Jacqueline. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Very well this morning. How about you? Not too bad. It's been a while. It has been a while, and it's usually this time of year where we touch base with the Employers' Council, or I guess will you touch base with us. So pre-budget consultations is always an interesting animal anyway, because for the most part, governments know what the budget is going to entail well before the consultations even start. How did What did you present to the officials this go-around? Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of four main things from a big picture perspective that we as an organization look at uh, when it comes to the budget. And, you know, uh, as you know, we've been we've been lobbying for more fiscal responsibility in this province for a very long time. Right. Uh, so the four main numbers I look at every year is, you know, what are we spending? Um, are we running a deficit? You know, what what how much debt do we have and what are we paying for interest on that debt? You know, so we want to see all the four, all those four numbers go down um, every budget year. You know, uh, this year we're hopeful that maybe we'll see that. I mean, in the in the mid-year update, government projected a surplus because of higher than expected revenues for this past year. Um, you know, so what what we've said is it's very important that government doesn't repeat mistakes that we've seen in the past, which is spending you know all of that money or more than that money um, when times are good just because we have it. Um, you know, we still have 16 billion dollars in net debt in this province. We spend a billion dollars every year to to service that debt and interest. That stuff that could be used you know for other services that people in the province want. Um, so we're hopeful that this year you know there'll be an opportunity to pay down some of that debt. The government you know maintains fiscal discipline. And, and spending discipline so that we can uh, pay down some of that debt or maybe remove some uncompetitive taxes that damage you know, job creation and growth in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, the, the billion dollars to uh, service the debt, some people kind of get lost in that as if we're actually chipping away at the net debt. Well, we're not. That's a billion dollars simply to service the interest on the debt. Yeah. On that front, this is a little bit beside the point, but 
What was the Employers Council's take on the fact that the province, one of the few provinces in the country that didn't have a diversified borrowing portfolio, have now gone to the London Stock Exchange with a billion dollars-ish worth of bonds? You know, every province in the country does it, except for PEI at this moment in time. Did you guys have a thought or a take on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, we were supportive of it. I actually happened to be in London on vacation when they made the announcement and got to go and uh, and see, you know, how the province positioned us on a global stage. Uh, it was positive to see. There was, there was great uh, response you know, from investors and people at the London Stock Exchange that were there. I mean, we're late to the party, which seems to be always the way in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, you know, we're the second last province to do that. Um, we are listed on the London Stock Exchange, which is, I think, a little bit better than some of the other provinces are listed in, in other areas. Yeah, Luxembourg. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it is a positive move. It's definitely we're, we're finally doing some forward-looking things, right? So so that's a positive thing. Um, you know, it's something that I think people need to understand that it's um, something that, you know, could help uh, lower that interest cost, you know, um, but only if, you know, those those interest rates in that jurisdiction are lower than what they are in the domestic markets, which is where we currently uh, borrow from. Um, so whether or not that's going to happen, you know, it remains to be seen, right? So it's still important that we pay down the debt so that we can reduce the overall interest. So, you know, anyone who's had a credit card knows what happens when you get in a situation where you run that up and you're paying, you know, more and more in interest every year. That crowds out your ability to actually get it down, right? So we need some responsible decisions that allow us to be able to pay that down. Yeah, some of that time lag between uh, borrowing domestically versus going to Europe. I guess with the Bank of Canada buyback, it, the bond buyback program, it kind of eased that bit of burden on the provinces in the last couple of years. Now that that's gone away, this was probably necessary. Uh, there's lots of reference to the future fund. And I believe the number is government put a, a, was $125 or $150 million in it, something like that. But help me understand the support for the future fund. I believe the Employers Council does support it because if we are running a net debt in and around $16 billion, would we not be better served, even in the long run, that if any money's so-called surplus, and last year's surplus bit of accounting magic, if any surplus mm -hmm. dollar goes to net debt versus the future fund, doesn't that save us money in the long run? Yeah, I mean, definitely we support paying down debt first, right? So the thing about bonds is it's not like a credit card where the money's just sitting there. You can pay it down whenever you want, right? So you have to wait till they come due. Uh, so the, I think the idea of, say, last year was that they put that money in the future fund as a holding place, um, you know, um, to be earmarked to pay down that debt when those bonds come due, right? So, I mean, I think the idea is that the future fund be used, and I think this is what the Green Report recommended, which is what we support, is that the future fund be used first to pay down debt, you know, and then, um, you know, for, for savings to transition, uh, you know, to a modern economy. Um, so, you know, that's the model, I guess, that we support in terms of the future fund. Uh, I think it's important for us to be able to contribute to a future fund, that we also ensure that we're um, accounted, government's more accountable for spending, um, for balanced budgets. Um, you know, in the Green Report recommendations, the balanced budget legislation was tied to the future fund. Um, you know, I think we need to make sure that government has sort of that second set of eyes or that the public is holding government accountable uh, for spending decisions to ensure that we're making smart investments tied to outcomes and improving outcomes for citizens um, and not political spending decisions, which, you know, again, we've seen in the past, right? So I talked about when we're in surplus, you know, government or, you know, when we have higher revenues, government ratchets spending up to match those revenues. We don't want to be making those kinds of same mistakes. We're in a province that has only balanced the budget 10 times since Confederation. So clearly it's something we have a problem with. Um, I think any accountability mechanism we can put in place uh, to provide more accountability for government on spending decisions is an important thing for us to do. Some of these things... Uh almost feel-good types of uh, approaches to take. Like people talk about Alberta and their Heritage Fund or Norway and their Sovereign Wealth Fund, which, of course, we're never going to be able to mimic or replicate given some of their uh, sovereign government's uh, ownership stake out in the North Sea, something that we don't really do. We're, you know, we're like 10 percenters. Uh, with the balanced budget legislation, 
again, that sounds like it makes all the sense in the world, but there is a sense of reverse engineering there. Is setting a number based on revenues and not straying outside of that. When there are rainy days, there are things that pop up, whether it be cyber attacks or whatever else people want to speak to, or reduction in uh, production barrels coming from the offshore, or who knows what kind of hiccups are faced. So how do you suggest the balanced budget works realistically, pragmatically? Because if we're simply going to reverse engineer, pick a revenue side number, which can fluctuate throughout the course of a fiscal year for the government, how does it actually really work? Because it's a feel-good. How manageable is it? When we're at this point, we're navigating borrowing over the last couple of years, you know, the $1.7 billion, what have you. So how can it not be viewed as a reverse-engineered issue? Well, right now, and so government already puts out projections um, for, you know, okay, what are we planning to spend over the next four years, right? Every budget yep. they put up a table includes those numbers, right? So what what balanced budget legislation is a bit of a misnomer, or at least how, how it was presented in the Green Report, which I again so is what too. we support. Um, you know, it's more about responsible budget legislation, right? So what we're asking for and what, what I think the citizens should expect is that, you know, government be accountable to hitting those projections. They're their own projections, right? They say they have a plan to achieve those spending targets. So regardless of what happens with revenues, I mean, if revenues drop dramatically, obviously that's a different story. So you put a contingency in place um, to, to allow for emergency situations or situations where that happens. But if, if they go up, that's when we, we hold to those spending targets that you should have a plan in place to achieve anyway, right, regardless of what happens if revenues increase. And that gives you the ability to use that money to pay down debt or save for the future. Um, you know, that's, I think, the thing that every other, you know, um, uh, organization, whether you're in private sector business, a nonprofit, you know, they follow that model. Governments should be held, households follow that model. You know, we should be held, holding our government to the same uh, standard. Yeah, even though government's not really like a business necessarily, there are so many different moving parts and variables that are sort of outside of managerial control sometimes. You know, what do you, how do you deal with things like last year? The budget spending was up, but it was incrementally up just based on uh, some interest uh, serving and or departmental spending, not the big increases we've seen over time. Since I've been in the media, we've gone from a budget around $3.5 billion to around $9 billion. The population is pretty much the same. So there is plenty of research also out there talking about what austere measures would be. Now, I don't think, like last year was labeled an austerity budget, but I didn't think it was. But how do you balance that? Because the austerity approach feels good short-term, but has long-term pain and sometimes unrecoverable pain. So I know fiscal restraint and fiscal responsibility is, of course, an important concept for government to take on. But it does come with a long-term pain if we ever see a balanced budget create austerity. Because I know that you know, and everyone who's ever looked at this knows, that feels good for one year, but you look five years down the road, it's had a real damaging effect. Yeah, well, I don't think that we can say that what's happened in Newfoundland and Labrador over the last decade has been austerity in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we've had a budget that has increased. Um, it's almost $10 billion, I think, was the projection for this year. So, you know, we're, we're looking at it going from $4 billion, you know, back just a decade or so ago, you know, to, to double, right? Um, so, you know, I, ca I don't think we can say it's austerity. Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's a false dichotomy out there. Uh, this is something that Janice McKinnon from Saskatchewan always says. You know, it's, it's that, um, you know, that that doing nothing is the path to austerity, right? So people think that, um, you know, making changes every year to, to live within our means, you know, uh, you can't label that as austerity. That's the responsible thing to do. Not doing that is what will lead you, you know, in five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road to all of a sudden realize that your system hasn't been modernized, like our healthcare system, for example, in 50 years. We can't afford, you know, what we have. It's a broken system that hasn't been modernized. Efficiencies aren't there, hasn't been updated to match the demographics and needs of the province now. Now. And then all of a sudden you have to make massive decisions 
decisions, you know, or we end up like we did four or five years ago where, you know, government had to increase taxes dramatically um, or they chose to. I shouldn't say they had to uh, so that we had the second highest personal tax burden in the, in the country. And then we still couldn't borrow in the bond market. You know, so it's, it's important that we're uh, setting targets every year that are reasonable, that are within our means as a province. Um, I don't think it's realistic that we have a budget that's over $10 billion in Newfoundland and Labrador for the size of our population, you know, with the, with the um, debt that we are carrying right now. Um, it's important that we hold government accountable to keep some downward pressure on what that spending looks like year over year so that they make continuous improvements, they innovate, and we don't end up in a situation in the future where we have to make wild swings, cuts, um, or massive tax increases. Fair enough. My thought, and I don't think any of the budgets of the recent past can be officially labelled or fairly labelled as austere, but the fast track towards balanced budget legislation and those types of things, that could bring upon some of those budgets unintentionally possibly. You know, it's those unintended consequences that come from political feel-good to long-term very questionable. Last one for you, Jacqueline. So... The Employers Council has long been talking about tax relief for citizens' business, whether it be the uh, doing away with HAPSET or the payroll tax. But how can we have both at the same time? That sometimes feels like a bit of cake and eat it too. You want control spending, but also a decrease on the revenue side. Those conflicting pressures become extremely difficult to navigate. So how can we see tax relief, even though people want to pay less tax, whether it be with gasoline or anything else, payroll and otherwise, but how can you see reductions, any appreciable reductions in taxes, jeopardizing revenue and also talking fiscal responsibility at the same time? Well, I think, you know, it's 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 not actually contradictory because you, you maintain fiscal discipline and spending control so that you can lower taxes, right? Um, and, you know, if we, we, we were in surplus at, at the mid-year update, uh, if our revenues are, are increasing, you know, it's up to government to make smart decisions about where they invest. Um, so whether it's a spending decision or it's a tax relief decision, um, you know, you look at the, the big picture and the impact that that's going to have on citizens or businesses, right? And, and right now we're in a situation in this province where, you know, we have some seriously uncompetitive tax. Um, that uh, do inhibit um, economic growth and, and job creation. Uh, and we're in a time where costs are increasing. You know, uh, the labor market is seriously challenged um, and businesses struggle with the same, you know, inflationary pressures and cost increases that citizens do. Um, so, you know, what we've asked for in this budget is looking at very specific taxes uh, that are uncompetitive um, that we think would free up, you know, investment um, and, and job creation in Newfoundland and Labrador. So the payroll tax is, is the biggest one. Um, you know, we've already seen them give some relief on gas tax, which was one of the other ones that we had had asked for, because transportation costs in Newfoundland and Labrador are very high. Uh, gas tax has a huge impact on business, which has a spin-off effect uh, to the to cost of goods and services to citizens. Um, you know, payroll tax is similar in that it's a tax that a 2% tax that goes on businesses when they hit a certain threshold um, for increasing their payroll costs, which means if you increase wages, if you hire more people, you're subjected to an extra tax. It's completely counterproductive to what we want in this province. It's coming at a time when wages are increasing uh, because of labor shortages, because government has legislated minimum wage increases, um, because of you know supply and demand issues. Um, you know, and in Newfoundland and Labrador, that threshold is 1.3 uh, million dollars, which means a business of you know the size of probably 25, 26 people who who pay their employees fifty thousand dollars a year is subjected to that tax. So that's most businesses in Newfoundland and Labrador. And to government, it represents probably somewhere around $177 million. not a ton of revenue, but that, right, that means a lot to the individual businesses that pay that tax, and it sends the wrong message. We should be incentivizing job creation, we should be incentivizing growth, uh, and that tax is completely counter, counterproductive. Appreciate the time this morning, Jacqueline. I guess we'll see you at Confederation Building tomorrow afternoon. 
yeah, see you then. Thanks, Patty. Okay, Jacqueline, bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Jacqueline Sullivan, Executive Director at the NL Employers Council. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the protests that are happening just outside the FF, uh, pardon me, the, I guess maybe at the DFO office. That's where they belong. We'll find out. Jason Sullivan's next. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jason Sullivan. You're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you doing? Best kind, you? Well, you know, it's a bit chilly down there, but, uh, but anyway, we're dressed for it. Uh, so you're outside the DFO offices, I assume, are you? Yeah, we're up on the White Hills yeah. now. We have the road blocked off, and we're we're hanging some uh, <laughs> crab pots around like Christmas decorations, and uh, just getting ready, waiting for all the media to come here now before we uh, we approach the building and stuff. And uh, you know, it, we've had enough. We can't get any answers. And uh, basically, we went to see Seamus the other day, and uh, so Seamus and the Newfoundland Caucus met with the minister last night, and. Uh, Nothing positive came from that. She's still uh, still stuck talking about science and stuff like this. That you know, this framework is something they've been working on ten years, and uh, they said they're still a year or two away from or three away from having three L as one biomass, like all the other natural areas, three K, three PS. Um, can't understand why, if you're working at something for ten years, you didn't have the science done to, to have it done right. And uh, you know, you can't blame anyone else if you're in charge of doing the science. I mean. You know, so it's tough to get an answer. So we're we're here today looking to speak with the regional director general because apparently that's the person that that puts in the recommendations to Ottawa, and we want to know what the recommendations are going to be. Okay, before we get into the precautionary approach and what's happening in 3L, so you say waiting for the media to come before you approach the building. What's the plan? Well, we're going in there until we're going to find out where the regional director general is, and we wants to speak to whoever it is now because I know he changed his job down here so often. You can't keep track of who's where. But, uh, I mean, we want some answers. I mean, enough's enough. Uh, you know, some members of the FFAW Inshore Council apparently are, are home putting on their snowsuits now as well, so they're coming down. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a complex, it's a complex problem for anyone outside the fishery to understand what's happening here where they separated the two biomasses. But, you know, uh, to put it, I guess, in perspective, if, if you imagine a, uh, you know, a, a rectangle box that's about... 225 miles long and then you drew a, an imaginary line down through that box about you know 10% of the way out over the box like 25 miles off that's what DFO was done and they said there's one biomass inside that 10% line and the other biomass is 200 miles wide and, and you know that's one biomass so it's hard to understand how they separated it into two biomasses and to me you know in fairness I mean there was a PA working group, but I don't, I'm not sure the members representing 3L Inshore. It might have been, you know, overall, there's a lot of numbers and stuff. It might have been over their heads. They didn't understand what they were looking at. And uh, we got into this, to this situation without, like, but the general license holders didn't know. So we only found out last week that this was actually written in stone and we were, we were, we were barred in. And, you know, these are people that are catching their quotas in, in one single day for, for two or three years in a row now. They're at between 30 and 50% of their historic levels. They can't get any crab back. And it's beyond frustrating. And I know everyone says the fishermen are at it again. They're at it again. But every time you turn around, someone's driving a knife in your back and you don't even know where it's coming from. I mean, so it's it's really frustrating that, you know, people up in Ottawa that have no clue about what's going on here in Royal Newfoundland can make a decision like this. And 
And using that box as an example, I mean, that's pretty much sums it up what it is. I mean, you know, it's 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 tough to understand the reasoning and the rationale behind it. But to me, from the outside looking in, it seems like they're a big push on to get rid of the 3L inshore, all the small boats, because let's be honest, it's a lot easier to deal with a boat with a million pounds on it rather than, you know, 70 boats that needs to catch a million pounds, you know? Yeah, I've, so, I've never really understood that. It kind of feels like some decisions have been completely anti-inshore, but I can, for the life of me, understand where anyone thinks there's a political upside to that. I mean, fewer people employed, lesser landed value, less money that will be uh, circulated throughout the provincial economy. None of it makes any sense if that's their intended well, goal. Well, the landed value will be there, but the distribution of wealth is... is you know, well, not necessarily, because if, it, for instance, if there's a lot of more offshore advanced quota, I mean, that can also incorporate doing away with a lot of landed value. A lot of the work can be done offshore in a factory freezer or trawler. Yeah, they can land yeah. it elsewhere. So, yeah, just, it's not as much, just not as much being asked. No, I understand. It's a, it's, it's a tough one to swallow, and, and it's hard to, you know, we, you know, again, it's tough getting the union to get on sideways and give us some support. I mean, having to go down and get them, they, they apparently... They found out last Friday that you know there's a line change in the in the in the plan, but I mean at the end of the day that line change wasn't a solution anyway. The solution was they won't buy a mess like everyone else. What they found out last Friday, and they still never told anyone. We had to go down there Monday, and then they finally broke the news to us. I mean, but we need we need them to step up, and I know like you know they're they're not used to being on the picket lines anymore, and they don't they're not used to doing much fighting. But we're here to fight now. We're going to split off into splinter groups and to keep this place shut down here until till we get some answers. And um, and I'm talking anyone that's working at DFO now, you might want to book a trip to, to Mexico or something for a week and go enjoy yourself because you're not going to work down here. Okay, so isn't the question exactly how and the thought process behind two separate biomasses inside of 3L? And if that's not the only question, what what else is there? That that is the that is the solution and the question why and they're saying like they're saying the science isn't there to support that and it's tough to again tough to understand that if they had the science there to determine that this is the amount of biomass inside 25 miles and this is the amount of biomass from 25 miles to 225 miles it's still the same area you're separated by an imaginary line you're, everyone's fishing on that line how come you can't just add the two together I mean it, it's you know I. I I, I know that's a simplistic solution, but I, I'm struggling to understand it. And if you did that and you added that, I believe they've they've greatly underestimated the inshore biomass because they, they usually used to have 25,000 tons. Now they say there's only 10,000 tons, which, I mean, coincidentally, I mean, I don't know how this could ever, I mean, it's a lot of fluke, but coincidentally, uh, inshore is harvesting 4,200 tonnes, so that's 42% of the biomass, which is the exact upper limit that you can't surpass in the PA framework. So it's it's like, I don't know, everything is lining up to, for an attack on the inshore, and uh, if we were joined with the offshore, one big biomass, and the removal levels were also joined, we'd be at an overall removal with increasing the inshore back to about 75% of its historic levels, because... There's tons of crab in there. That's the problem. If you if we didn't have any crab, I mean, it wouldn't be everyone wouldn't be so upset. But everyone's catching their crab in one day. We know there's some market uh, questions, and it's going to be a tougher year. And uh, people want some of their crab back. But if we had 75% of our crab back joined with the offshore removals, we'd still only be back to about 28.5% rem- removal rate of the overall biomass, and that can go up to 42%. But DFO is saying, Wayne King is saying that, you know, if you keep it around 30%, you should avoid the peaks and valleys. You should have a stable resource. 
So we cannot figure out what's going on here and why what's the, what's the hold up if they're trying to start people out and put, put people in into these kind of dire situations when there's absolutely no need. The resources there, we want access to it. The last time we were in a situation like this was when COVID came. Quotas were just were 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 down at an all-time low because of an environmental occurrence that happened, and DFO can confirm that. Well, but 2019, time, there was almost a collapse there five years ago. I think everyone will acknowledge. Just a quick point that I'll get you to react to. So, you know, catching is one thing, selling is another. And I heard Ryan Cleary talk about this the other day. Shouldn't we absolutely factor in market realities to not only the price that gets set, but how much crab we take out of the water? Because I don't know what the exact number is. It's probably somewhere in and around 30%, and some of that might be crab harvested by folks from the Magdalene Islands. Whatever. Maybe. I don't know. But if a lot of crab still sits in cold storage, shouldn't we factor in what the market can bear and the price it can bear and the amount it can bear before we just catch for the sake of catching? Yeah, I agree, and uh, and that's a good point. And, uh, and my answer to that point would be that if we were back to like seventy five percent, like of our levels. So if you look at three L inshore, and if anyone's familiar with it, the line that separates the imaginary line that separates three L inshore from three L offshore, that next area is at uh, they're back to seventy five percent of their historical removals. So inshore at between thirty and fifty. If we were back to seventy five percent, no one would be down here today. No one would be like, well, we would be if, with this framework, but, you know, ideally if we were one biomass, we're back to 75%, no one would be here today because, you know, the market reality is if we had to take a rollover, that's fine. But now you're asking us, not you, we're only at 30%, lots of areas over in Conception Bay, you got 8,000 pounds of crab to catch, you used to have 24,000. So we're here at 8,000 pounds. We can't have an increase because the market is in a, in a rough situation, but then you have to look on the other side of the wharf and there's a 65-footer there with a, with a million point one one point one million pounds on it, and uh, you know one hundred and twenty percent more than they've ever had, and and you're expecting the little guy that's not even going to qualify for EI to shoulder that burden. So th- this is where we're at, and we don't want to take anything from anyone else. But uh, my personal opinion on that, we got a market now that has about one hundred and thirteen million pounds going into it. I don't see the difference if you went from one hundred and thirteen million to one hundred and fifteen million. I really don't. I don't think if, if there was a news article that came out tomorrow and said Newfoundland crab resort uh, attack has increased by 1.5%, I don't think the whole market is going to crash over that. I appreciate the time this morning, Jason. I'll be curious to see what kind of answers may be forthcoming or not. Well, yeah, probably take a few days. You know, it's the way government is. It usually takes a couple of days to get anything from them, but uh, we're going to be here until we do. So uh, have a good day, Patty. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Okay, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there's a voice from the protest outside the DFO and what that, uh, I guess, remains to be seen, what uh, approaching the building entails, but hopefully cooler heads prevail, even though it's always a very emotional issue inside that industry in particular. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, the queue is open to you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. So we just had some union-related uh, discussion with Jason Sullivan. You know, they say the FFAW has kind of dropped the ball here when, I mean, I don't know, I'm not intimately involved, but they did indeed organize a meeting with which they characterize as having gone pretty well with Minister O'Regan on the union front uh, at, again. So it looks like now there's a news release coming from NAEP 
that the workers at Bishop's Garden Senior Living in St. John's have voted to join NAEP. So that's some 50 frontline workers that are working at Bishop's Gardens that are now a member of that particular, the largest uh, organized labor group in the province. Okay, let's keep going to line number 10. Say good morning to the president at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Amy Cody. Hi, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad this morning. How about you? I'm doing great. Just wanted to uh, touch base with you on uh, regionalization as we head into budget day tomorrow. Um, we are optimi- <laughs> we are optimistic, um, you know, that we'll get some news tomorrow on regionalization. Um, we know it, it has to move forward. Uh, we're looking for some more information on government's commitment to continue continuing with a regional approach and uh, hopefully to get some concrete uh, answers, I guess, and, and and focus on, you know, how that's going to happen tomorrow. How would the budget deal with the strategy or the implementation of uh, a regionalization or a county system, whatever people want to call it? Well, I mean, obviously there is a financial aspect to doing a regional plan. Um, you know, we... the. The uh, joint working group proposal talks about setting up the regions, having resources assigned to each particular region, whether it's dealing with land use planning, uh, you know, engineering services, financial services, uh, whatnot, just helping the the, uh, regions as they're developed because they are going to be so different. It's not going to be cookie cutter, as we've been saying all along. Um, So just, you know, understanding that um, the supports will be there to set up, to work with the regions, to help them move through the processes, realize what services they can share, um, you know, help them to think outside of the box a little bit and kind of move their their regions forward that way. So, um, and, and what we've always said right from the start as well is we understand that there is a cost associated with a regional structure, um, but what we have maintained from the start is what is the status quo costing? What is it costing the government to provide the services that it's providing to municipalities now? Um, you know, there's a solution um, that we're offering that we all feel um, can work, and we know our members are crying out for it and telling us that they need it. Um, so, you know, what what are the gains here? Um, what does it cost to just continue as is? Um, compared to what it would cost moving forward with a different approach. Can you give us some idea what those numbers look like? Um, well, there's numbers in the the regional uh, the working group estimates. Um, it, you know, in that proposal, it's really on the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs to come up with those numbers. Um, they have to do the deep dive. They have to look at the structure of the uh, you know of the regions. Um, some are large regions. Some are smaller regions. Uh, some you know have larger municipalities in them. Some have more LSDs. So it's really different. It's difficult to put an exact number on each region, um, and that's what we're looking for and waiting for the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs to come back with. They've done some running of the numbers and have some idea of what it can cost, but again, it's uh, you know it's just it's on the surface at this point, so we can't really say for sure. So we're familiar with the working groups. Uh uh, diligence they put forward on this front. We have some understanding of the government who are in favor of and pushing for some regionalization here. But can you give me any understanding of exactly what's been done? Because when I last spoke to Minister Howell, 
couldn't really articulate anything that's been advanced here. So do you happen to know what happened with your report and if we've made any forward strides, if there's been any architecture worked on for any region in the province as to how it might look? We've, we have met with uh, Minister Howell um, and her department. We have quarterly meetings with them um, just, you know, on the municipalities' work um, on a whole but in particular with the joint working group and what they have done to date. So the plan or the the proposal was presented back in February of 2022. So we are a year in. We've been continuing to work with and meet with the department officials on, um, you know, the, the, the proposal itself. Um, We did meet with them. Goodness. I think it was last fall, uh, late summer, early fall. Um, on the breakdown, um, how they figure the regions can look, how many regions they think there can be, um, and some rough estimates of what it would cost to roll out regionalization for those regions. Um, just last week during our advocacy days and as part of our quarterly update, we met with Minister Howell and the uh, Deputy Minister and the um, uh, the ADM as well, um, and just went through it again, um, spoke about it just reiterated to her and her staff again that our municipalities are crying out for regionalization. We had our small towns virtual meeting last week. We had, I think, 80 or more municipalities participate in that virtual meeting. And uh, it's it's dismal. I mean, you can't say it any other way. Um, our municipalities are having to make cuts because of rising costs. Um, they... They need engineering services. They need bookkeeping and auditing services. Those costs have doubled in some instances. Um, And not just the cost of those services doubling, but the ability to find the skilled workers to be able to do that work for municipalities is becoming increasingly difficult as well. So we have reiterated that to the department. And through our advocacy days, we've met with the PC caucus, the NDP caucus, We've met, like I said, with Minister Howell. We've met with Minister Loveless, Minister Cody, um, and Minister Andrew Parsons. Um, and, you know, we've, we've reiterated to each one of them, regionalization has to happen. Um, you know, we're doing what we can. MNL is doing the work. Um, we are doing what we can for our members. We are in the process right now, actually, of putting out an expression of interest call for financial, um, IT, and human resources support for our sector. Um, And that'll be part of our membership services, kind of like the legal services that we offer currently in a partnership with Stuart McKelvey, um, you know, where our members can make a a phone call to Stuart McKelvey and they get, I don't know, 15 minutes or so, you know, before the, the clock starts ticking and the bill starts tabulating. But that's a service that we provide to our members, and we want to kind of branch that out a little bit. But, you know, that's stopgap. Like, mm-hmm. it, it can't be that all the time for us. There has to be uh, a level of responsibility on behalf of, uh, on the part of the provincial government to help our members. 
So, I mean, the shared services is certainly part of this where we can find a more effective and productive way to deal with these issues. It seems to me uh, a lot of words that begin with R just come with negative connotations. It's relocation, it's resettlement, it's regionalization, when in fact what we're really talking about is collaborative uh, approach. It's shared services. You know, it's all boiled back down to, well, I don't want to pay more taxes to not get anything in, in, in addition to what I already have, which kind of misses the point for a lot of this conversation as far as I can see. Uh, very quickly before we run out of time this morning, what else is on the table here for MNL and the 276 incorporated communities that you represent? So whether it be with sustainable infrastructure or wastewater or health and safety issues inside municipalities or the creation of climate change uh, mitigation measures, what else has been the ask? Well, for in our advocacy, of course, for, with regards to budget, if that's what you're asking, obviously the MOGs is a big thing for us. That's, there's been no increase in the MOGs since 2015. They're currently, um, you know, the province made the commitment last year to hold them or maintain them at $22 million for three years. Um, but that $22 million today needs to be $28 million. So we've asked for a $6 million increase for budget uh, that we're hoping we're going to hear tomorrow. Um, and like I said, that's just to maintain the current level of service that we're providing. That's no additional. That's nothing extra. That's just to maintain the level of service that we currently provide to our residents. So that's a big thing for us. There's still some clarity required around the uh, ISIP programming. We've told the funds have been allocated. We still don't have details as to where, what programs, uh, what projects are going to be funded, how many projects, what is the value. So, you know, there's still uh, still a lot of information that we're looking for on that. And, of course, we're still waiting on our updated municipal uh, municipalities act, the Cities Act, and the City of St. John's Act. So, you know, four major things for us, um, and we're hoping to get some positive news in tomorrow's budget. We'll all find out around the same time. Appreciate the time this morning, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate yours. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As Amy Cody, the president at MNL. And so it's it's going to be very similar pushback right from the get-go on regionalization. So uh, a Twitter follower says that Amy Cody has no idea. She says, she's the face of increased taxes for decreased services. When even if you look at the report, it doesn't say that you're going to have to pay more tax and not get any additional service, number one. Number two is that whole analysis that she spoke to right off the top. What does it cost municipalities and the province right now to fund or fuel the status quo versus what it would look like, feel like, and cost for any meaningful approach to a county-based system. Without that, we'll never get down to the brass tacks because folks who are vehemently opposed are never going to be convinced that there's another way to do business better, more effective, uh, more productive, and cost less. So until we see someone who can come up with those numbers, and I think that responsibility lies on the Department of Municipalities, uh, Municipal Affairs, pardon me, as opposed to MNL or a collection of uh, leaders from uh, local service districts or anywhere else. So that's the careful analysis that we just don't really have with the big picture numbers. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a caller there to talk about health care and then plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Good day. Good day to you. 
Okay. <laughs> Thank you for taking the call. <laughs> no I got a health care, a few questions to ask. Uh, how much do a doctor get paid uh, roughly a year? Depends on what kind of doctor. Uh, just a doctor, like, say, go to Bonavista. Well, that I guess that target has floated a fair bit in the recent past because, you know, there's a difference in the rate of pay if you work in a level one or level two setting, even though I don't pretend to uh, entirely understand that. But a family doctor in that region will make uh, healthy six figures, and now with a $200,000 signing bonus in addition to that, I'm going to say they're well paid. Yeah, well, we had just said he worked for uh, $200,000 a year plus a $200,000 bonus. Okay, so uh, just so I know where we're going, the point you're trying to make is? A doctor makes, two, say, $200,000 a year. And uh, for Bonavis at the time, now it's $200,000 bonus. Uh, average salaries I uh, just found very yeah. easily. It was about $250,000. So, yes, and for Bonavista and Bayvert and New West Valley, there has been an additional $200,000 for a two-year contract that has been dangled out there as well. Yes. Oh, congratulations, Bonavista. <laughs> we, uh, we got our fight. We haven't got to worry about anywhere else in the Newfoundland. Where are right? That's the way people seem to think here. <laughs> think where? Okay. Uh, I, I, no, I just make this fast. No, a doctor makes uh, say three three hundred thousand dollars a year. And some surgeons and anesthesiologists make well more. Yes, yes, much I more. understand. Yes, I understand that. Okay, a doctor comes to Bonavis a year makes two hundred thousand dollars and two hundred thousand dollar bonus. I makes. My income for a year is thirty-two thousand, working at a fish plant. So, if uh, that doctor comes here for two years, he uh, his uh, work, the time he got to work, I got to work eighteen to twenty years. What he can do coming here in one two years in Bonavista, eighteen to twenty years to two. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm going to have to work a long time to earn what doctors earn, too, but I guess there's a premium paid for that type of training and time it takes and the expertise required to be a registered medical doctor, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. I agree. Yeah. But do you, uh, do, do people honestly think they are worth that much? Do you have lots of patients because people will be hungry? And have to go in and see them. You haven't got to worry about the patients. Because we're, st we're starving, almost starving to death here at $32,000 a year, trying to live on run house, car, everything, groceries. You goes in and buys a roast meat, it's 10 or $15 for one meal. So, Oh, I totally get it. I, I mean, we try to talk about the realities of working class folks here every single day on this program. And you're right, there are certain professions that get paid massive amounts of money. Of course there are. Yes, and uh, and they deserve it probably. But uh, uh, I, I don't know what the lower class people is considered as now. So probably do you assume that we down to a zombie? The other one we would uh, remote. It's is uh, really not fair at all, Patty. Do, what do you think? What? Are you asking me if it's fair that you make the, what you do versus how much a doctor makes? 
uh, yes, basically that's what I'm asking. Well, I, I suppose I would, I mean, I'm not really sure how to answer that. Uh, you sure hope that you have a doctor when you need a doctor, and if that involves uh, a certain amount of money being paid to that doctor, it's hard to put a price tag on your health, so I don't know. But I think you made an interesting point that they're not going to run out of patients, and and I don't no. mean patients like it takes to do this show. I mean physical no. patients, clients, because they're coming hand over fist. And people trying to make ends meet with the level of money that you say you're making, I really do struggle to understand how people are keeping their head above water. But I don't know if I have a definitive comment on how fair it is for one profession or another to make that money. I think doctors, for the most part, are worth every penny. But that's right. not to say that you shouldn't be making more working hard in a fish plant. I think they're two kind of different conversations. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, I guess I did have something else there, but I, I guess I uh, caught it off at that. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, people are clamoring for a doctor, and of course, for some of them, it's about money. For some, it's all kinds of things. It's money and opportunities and amenities and travel and something for their partner to do if they have one. All right, uh, let's go. I'm going to go to, uh, you want me to take a break here, Fonce? So, uh, Yvette Coffey's in the queue. She's the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. A lot to deal with there. You know what the number of nurse vacancies looks like, what that really means. And then there's a thought out there that it's easier and there's less red tape in other provinces to get an RN to work versus what it looks like and feels like in Newfoundland and Labrador. There's the thought also offered by someone yesterday that there's nurses willing to work that are not being hired by the regional health authorities. We'll get uh, Yvette's thoughts on that and whatever else you think we should ask her about right after this break. Don't Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the president of the Registered Nurses Union of NL. That's Yvette Coffey. Good morning, Yvette. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Right off the bat, before we get into some of the moving parts here, people are coming to me in large numbers saying that they know someone or they are this person who is a registered nurse that is having a hard time getting hired. You know, we talk about the vacancies all the time, but the regional health authorities might not be hiring to fill those vacancies as easily or as quickly as they can. Can you help us understand what's going on there? Well, it's very disappointing and uh, troublesome for me to hear that, knowing the number of vacancies, which is standing at 752 as of October. Uh, I do know I've heard issues before, and I do encourage people, if you're having issues and no one's getting back to you, reach out to us. I mean, you can even go to our website and email me with specifics in that so I could uh, alert the health authority. But there's also hierarchy within the health authorities. And I was, I would even say if you're having trouble uh, getting recruitment to get back to you and knowing all these vacancies, I'd go right for the CEO of the REJ and say, what's going on here? Because yeah, it's worth knowing. If people are saying, look, I have the qualifications, I, I just can't seem to get hired, even though all I hear about is 750 vacancies, something doesn't jibe there. So whenever anyone passes no. that thought on to me, I'll pass it directly on to you uh, with their permission. Yeah. Okay. I've heard you make reference to, look, it's one thing to see the comprehensive suite of incentives for doctors in particular. You're talking about other, what I guess is maybe best practices in your mind, in other provinces when they're also doing more and more, financially speaking, to attract or to keep registered nurses. Where are you, where are you looking and what are you seeing? Well, 
just recently this week, Nova Scotia just announced upwards of $20,000 incentives for registered nurses uh, and nurse practitioners uh, to get them to, well, those who are working, uh, to show appreciation for the work they're doing uh, and for the value they bring to the system. And also for them to stay on for another year or two and get the bigger amount of money. I mean, we've done $3,000 here. That's a pittance compared to 20000 in our neighboring province. And we're also the lowest paid in Canada at the moment. So when you factor that in, plus we have registered nurses and nurse practitioners working alongside uh, other nurses from private agencies making two to three times their wage, it, we got the perfect storm here because our members are angry. They're getting, they're frustrated. Um, they're traumatized. Like every day they're going into work, they're working shores or they're mandated overtime and walking out crying, saying, what did I miss? Like this is a healthcare system in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador right now. It is broken. We cannot get surgeries done. We cannot get at the backlog of procedures. We cannot get residents into long-term care where they need to be. Uh, because we have beds, but we don't have registered nurses and other healthcare providers to provide care for the patients or residents. Yeah, because when I say bed or the inability to get a bed, and I admitted to a, a caller yesterday, I probably just get too comfortable talking about these things because I do it all the time. A bed is not just the bed and the mattress and the pillow. A bed is the staff to uh, accompany the patient. Okay. Exactly. Can you give us some numbers here? Because, you know, we're told, and I think it's been verified, that there's more doctors, for instance, in the province now than ever before. Now, what they're actually doing, I think, is a question that looms large. Like, even last year, there was a net loss of seven doctors. So 122 left and 115 new licenses granted. But many of them say they're only going to work locums or to walk in clinics, maybe do some pure research. So not everyone's carrying the full patient roster. So that's one thing. Do we have some numbers for context about how many registered nurses in the province, say, five years ago versus today or 10 years ago versus today? Well, I don't have all those numbers, but I can say our vacancy rate went from in October, in April of 2022, from 614 with a 22% increase six months later to 752. That's registered nurses. We also have to look at our nurse practitioners. And we do not have enough nurse practitioners to meet the needs of the primary health care. So, yes, we have a shortage of physicians. We do. And I know central health has an even bigger shortage that compared to the other RHAs. But we have nurse practitioners there ready, willing, able, capable, educators who can take on the rostering of these patients who do not have a family physician. And it boggles my mind the resistance, I don't know if it's by government, if it's by the department or the health authorities, some of it is all of the above. And resistance, you know, about shared scopes of practice and that we could be utilizing these nurse practitioners um, to address the lack of primary health care physicians. And it boggles my mind we're not doing that. There was an announcement in October, I stood with the minister. I have yet to get a report that there's been positions created for nurse practitioner-led clinics for all these people who are going to the emergency departments because they have nobody to care for the primary health care needs. 
Fair enough. And again, I'm looking for high-level numbers that I probably should have asked you to get before we uh, have you on today. Like, for instance, the number of long-term care beds, I've heard you use this number. There's approximately 200 long-term care beds that are not occupied by somebody now because they're now currently a patient in the hospital versus going to a long-term care facility because we don't have registered nurses. Do we happen to know how many empty hospital beds are, just even pick a hospital, St. Clair's, Health Sciences, James Patton, or wherever, about how many beds are empty simply because of staffing issues. Because we hear from people, I can't get my surgery, I can't get this done, why no bed? Which, of course, means the bed and the staff. Well, the acute care facilities, like your Health Science, your James Patton and that, uh, they don't have many beds closed because we have the patients who are waiting for long-term care who are occupying these beds as well, Right. Uh, now, we have 240 long-term care beds, and we ATIP that. That's an accurate number. Uh, 240 long-term care beds in the province that are closed. And that number, I believe, is as of January. And I know since then, Placentia, for example, which is my home area, um, just closed a long-term care unit due to the lack of staffing. Uh, I also know in Gander that one of the homes out there... Uh, as people pass away, they're not taking in new patients because they just don't have enough staff to care for the number of patients and residents that they have in these long-term care facilities. Amazing. Uh, I want to touch uh, on the private travel nurses. So, like, for instance, in my job, if I quit this job, then I've signed a non-compete where I can't work in a, this, this industry for, let's say, a year. Would it have some teeth or would it even be fair to have something like that in the nursing world? I'm a registered nurse. I'm working for Eastern Health. I have been for however long. Now, all of a sudden, because of burnout or more attractive pay to be a tra private travel nurse, I can simply leave the public system to go to the private system. Whereas if I did that today, I wouldn't be allowed to work in my industry. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. And I have been told by health authorities that there is a clause in these contracts with these private agencies, which are companies out of uh, British Columbia, that they are not supposed to be uh, taking our students or our registered nurses. But I am hearing stories of registered nurses here who get out, say for emergency department, get all this training, all these extra courses, not work one shift, in our emergency department and go off with a with a uh, agency the next day and come back working here with that agency. So there's no there's no one watching that or um, monitoring it uh, to my knowledge because I have asked at the department level and the RHAs, but they're poaching our nurses and they're poaching them on a daily basis. And I think a clause like that, the RHAs should be cracking down on that and making sure that our registered nurses are not walking out of our publicly funded healthcare facility and coming back tomorrow with a, pro a private agency. Yeah, you know, and I'm not trying to be unfair. People's mobility and their, uh, their need and want to work for who they want, when they want, I get all that. But we do see a public system under massive strains that maybe we have to consider these types of moves. And it might sound unfair to someone who's now a traveling private nurse, but the public system is bearing the brunt of some of these individual decisions. Uh, have things changed dramatically, or has it been the impact of the pandemic and hours worked and burnout and the aggressive nature of some patients who are unable to get the treatment they need and want on the timeline they want? Because I don't really know what's changed here. I've got a funny feeling it's all the burnout and backlog that's been created by COVID-related uh, measures, 
versus that the landscape has really changed this dramatically in the last three years? Well, if you look back, when I went, to, when I was in training in the late 80s, we talked about the aging population in Newfoundland and Labrador. So the workforce is also aging. The pandemic um, is exacerbated uh, the nursing shortage. Yeah, sure it is, because people just got fried during, uh, you know, COVID and the lockdowns and, you know, watching people pass away without their loved ones with them. I mean, the trauma that that has put on our members and everybody working in our system. But we were already looking and projecting a nursing shortage. We've been talking about this provincially. We've been talking about this federally long before the pandemic. And it is the lack of health HR human resource strategy provincially and nationally that has gotten us to where we are. Nobody was looking at the forecasting because everything is political and it's the government of the day and the party of the day making decisions, but not looking to the future, um, you know, to forecast out. Well, how many registered nurses do we have in Newfoundland? How many are set to retire? How many can retire? And how many are we graduating? There was nobody looking at all of this. At least right now, we have a new Department of Recruitment and Retention for healthcare professionals. Uh, There is a health human resource strategy, which I am getting a briefing on this week, uh, that's been awarded. And, you know, going forward, we are hoping that we will have the statistics to be able to map out how many do we need to be graduating? How quick do we need to get them graduated? I mean, we only graduated a little over 200 last year, registered nurses. We only graduate, I think it's 19 nurse practitioners a year here at Memorial. But those seats need to be increased. If we're ever going to get to 35, you know, primary health care clinics that they're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, another announcement this week, you need people in place for that, right, in order to get that up and running. And, you know, I just heard your caller before uh, I got on, Patty, and my thought went to the Health Accord NL and social determinants of health. If we're ever going to get to a place in Newfoundland and Labrador that we have enough health care providers, that we are giving people the preventative health care that they need so that we are not in the situation we are right now with the increased chronic diseases, you know, and the poorest outcomes in the country, We need to be planning and we need a strategy to staff up our institutions and our communities. And it's not just registered nurses, nurse practitioners, or physicians. It takes a team for healthcare to function. You know, your environmental uh, cleaning person, your dietary person, your porters, your LPNs, your PCAs. I mean, we have a big shortage of LPNs and PCAs in long-term care as well, which is contributing to the closure of long-term care beds. Everything has to be looked at as a whole and not piece by piece. Oh, oh, sure. You know, last one before I am going to have to get to the newscast is we have to be honest and talk about the reality and what people are experiencing on the ground and on the front lines. But I think there's also a time and a place, and maybe we've arrived at that time and place, where we also have to point to and craft a message about why someone should want to be a nurse. (laughs) Because we've painted a picture now where it seems like hell on earth. So expanding seats, but if people are thinking, my God, I don't want to do that when I hear all those stories, there's also an upside to being a nurse. My mother was a nurse. You were a nurse. We have lots of nurses who are friends of ours, and they do indeed get some joy and satisfaction and gratification from being a nurse. So at some point, we're going to have to 
uh, blend those two messages together. Here's the problems we need to solve, but here's the upside with being a registered nurse as well, because if we want more seats expanded, we want bums in those seats too, and they've got to have a reason why they want to be one. Exactly, and I've been nursing. This is my 33rd year. I am I am a registered nurse, Patty, still. Okay, sorry. Um, and I love nursing. I would never even think about changing my career path. It has been one of the most rewarding careers uh, for me, and it is very rewarding for uh, the people who are currently working in the system. But in order to improve things in our broken healthcare system, you have to identify the issues first, and then you have to enact solutions. And we've been coming with solutions now for years. Yep. And we've done some work the past year and a half with this government uh, on solutions. But I can tell you right now, when you hear about big incentives being announced for positions, knowing we have 752 vacancies for nurses here in this province, it's like a slap in the face to those people who are there struggling in the system, trying to hold it together. And we need to do better to show registered nurses and nurse practitioners they're valued and respect us for the work that they do. I really appreciate the time this morning, Yvette. Thank you. Thank you. Take good care. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Yvette Coffey, the president of the Registered Nurses Union of Newfoundland and Labrador. I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing here, but let's go to line number three. Say good morning to VOCM News, Brian Medor. Brian, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How you doing? Doing okay, sir. Where are you? We're at DFO, kind of in that, uh, uh, right underneath to the main doors of the DFO building. Uh, this would have been where the protest took place a few years ago, if you recall, and uh, there was some damage, some glass busted, things like that. Uh, this one is peaceful. There's no such incident. They were trying to get in. They were banging on the doors. Uh, they want to speak to DFO about all these changes to the uh, structure, the biomass, uh, but uh, obviously uh, no one from DFO will be has come out or will be coming out, I suspect. Uh, the RNC are on the scene, and they uh, have no intention of, trying to disrupt the protest uh, they did tell the protesters to leave uh, the sheraton last uh, on monday but uh, no such uh, move has been made here so far so it's uh, peaceful so far about a hundred i would say crab fishermen are here uh, right at dfo and i'm sure many of them will be there with a variety of issues that have bothered them over the years in conjunction with the snow crab issue. So the ultimate question that I think they're asking is, why all of a sudden inside of 3L is there two separate biomasses versus even the adjoining zones? Are you hearing other gripes or concerns being voiced on top of the snow crab uh, precautionary approach issue? No, that is the main one. That's what they want to talk to DFO about is uh, putting that uh, biomass into two, the 3L into two biomasses. Uh, you hear stories of uh, the uh, larger boats being able to come in. There's a one-mile buffer zone between the, say, the inshore area and the midshore and offshore area. And uh, the bigger boats can come in and uh, access that buffer zone, but the smaller boats, the inshore, cannot go into that one-mile buffer zone. Uh, I hear a lot of stories. One guy told me he went from 60,000 tons a couple of years ago down to 20,000 tons now. You hear similar stories that the larger boats are uh, fishing 120% of what they would have had a while ago, the inshore down to 30 40%. So uh, exactly how the new structure affects that, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty complex issue. But that's, they're the stories that we're uh, hearing here. Brian, I appreciate your time coming from the White Hills out front of the DFO offices. When and if things change or for the better or worse, we get some answers. We appreciate you coming back on the show. 
We'll keep you apprised. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. As Brian Medora from the White Hills, when we come back from the newscast, we're talking to Leonard about the fishery and then plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president of the Paramedic Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Rodney Goody. Rodney, you're on the air. Good morning. How's it going today? Very well, thanks. How about you? Uh, could be better, obviously. Uh, we're uh, getting quite uh, frustrated with the lack of communication uh, from the government and Department of Health uh, regarding what is the overall plan of our paramedicine system in our province here. Uh, for the last number of months, we've been trying to communicate with the government and have uh, been met with complete silence on uh, what exactly is taking place. And, uh, you know, obviously in the news in the last little while, we've heard of Many things regarding uh, paramedics and ambulances. Uh, first off, with the uh, strike action that happened uh, with seven areas of our province that were left without ambulances uh, for a matter of days uh, while the strike action was happening. Uh, this led to, obviously, the uh, emergency sitting of the House that uh, where new uh, legislation was passed uh, to get the paramedics back to work. And then we've heard of uh, a closure of enameled service in the province with no real backup plan in place whenever that was uh, taken, whenever that took place. And then we're also hearing now rumors of uh, potentially uh, two services on the southern shore that are uh, going to be without an ambulance and no, again, no backup plan in place of what's going to happen. Uh, the minister has uh, said um, ACP uh, uh, rapid response units, uh, but that does not uh, solve the issue. That's a, a Band-Aid solution there. Uh, there's still no transport uh, available for that uh, unit. Uh, that's just an ACP coming to assess the scene and able to provide care, uh, vital care, but still not a transport. The still closest ambulance would still be hours away. And uh, it's, again, not an overall solution. It's just a Band-Aid uh, being put onto a system that has been bleeding out for years now. Rodney, are the two communities on the southern shore, are you talking about Cape Royal and uh, Trapassi? That is correct, yes. Okay. So you and I have been talking about this issue for a frustratingly long amount of time. And not my yep. frustration, but yours. And I would suggest that has an impact on the entire province. So the reference is back to 13 years. And there's been so many reports, whether they be from our own Auditor General, Grant Thornton, Ernst & Young, and others. Inside those reports, what do they basically say or suggest? Uh, pretty much every single one of them say the same thing and that uh, we need to do a complete overhaul of the system that uh, we can't just you know change one or two little things and and everything be tickety boo uh, we've got to change a lot of things like a robust change needs to be done to the entire system uh, now we're seeing the health accord is another uh, example of this where uh, emphasis are being put on uh, a more advanced modernized uh, paramedicine service in our province in order for the entire health accord to truly be uh, impacted across the whole province so we need to have that in place and we're not getting any information from the government on what that is going to look like how is that going to be implemented and uh, how are we going to get there exactly so uh, like I said we want this communication we want to sit down with government and talk about it uh, the frontline staff uh, know the issues that exist and, uh, you know, the, the government knows what the issues are as well. These reports that have been done over the years have clearly outlined the issues and have clearly outlined possible solutions to these issues. And it's a matter of the government to follow through with these recommendations and to fully follow through with the recommendations with the reports that have been done in the past. We've seen bits and pieces uh, being followed through with, but not a complete uh, follow through with the complete report. And now again with the health, health accord, 
our concern now is that uh, they'll pick and pick and choose what pieces they uh, they want to follow through with on, and not follow through with a complete uh, implementation of the entire plan. Yeah, because just amalgamating ground and air dispatch is the baby step, the epitome of a baby step. So, does the association have? Uh, options that they prefer. For instance, we talk about the fragmented nature of private versus public offerings here in the province, some contract cancellations and mercy is sitting in the House of Assembly, those types of things. Do paramedics and you as president of the association, for instance, if a multinational company came in and took over the entirety of ground ambulance service, the whole kit and caboodle, or everything was run by the health authorities, and I guess now it would be the Department of Health, given they're all being blended into, into one entity. So is there an option that's preferable? Yeah, basically, like when you look at uh, other uh, provinces that have done uh, these types of things, uh, there's pros and cons at, at at all these avenues. So it's a matter of you know not just about picking one of these options. It's about you know once you pick that option, what what avenue do you go, do you go down in order to ensure that it it is the right uh, pick uh, to re- ensure that the right um, procedures are put in place to ensure that the patient care is at the utmost. Uh, importance in uh, ensuring that the they get, the patient gets the best care at all times, and it's not about profit. It's not about um, you know who gets uh, the most uh, money at the end of the day. It's about like I said, the patient care is what it comes down to. So all of the different options that are on the table, all of them could be a viable option if they're done correctly. So it's not a matter of we have a preference of this one over that one. It's a matter of us being at the table when those discussions are ha- happening to ensure that the patient care is the, mo- the most important thing. And then the practitioners are the next most important thing as well to ensure that uh, our, our system is better improved for the practitioners that are just in our province right now. Uh, last year, we've seen uh, the uh, uh, recruitment and retention uh, plan that was put in place with uh, basically throwing money out there uh, to people from paramedics from other provinces to come here and then throwing a little bit of money that the, the, with the paramedics that are uh, currently in our province. And again, that's not a solution. That's just another band-aid that we're putting on this bleeding system. Uh, we need to look at what are the true issues of why people are leaving the profession, why are people leaving the, the province, and uh, resolve those issues so that people won't want to leave the profession or leave the province. And that's a better solution to the recruitment and retention. So again, we just want to be at the table to ensure that you know the patient care and the practitioners are being thought of at the, at the uh, during the whole procedure of this. Is there a province that we can look to for best practices, like a model that seems to be working best for patient care and for paramedics? Um, off the top of my head, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of places where they're doing different things. Uh, you know, you look at BC, the way they're doing mm-hmm. things there, things are working well. Uh, you know, obviously with uh, Nova Scotia, uh, New Brunswick, PEI, uh, they are having some issues, but there is also some things that are, that are happening there that are good. Uh, each of those provinces are done a little bit differently, even though they are all Medivy. Uh, so there's not, again, not like one perfect solution. It's a matter of looking at all these different options and uh, picking in, and uh, picking pieces and putting it together to make it the best for our uh, our province here. Because uh, you, when you look at our province, it is quite different than other provinces with the vast uh, um, uh, land size that we have here versus the population that we have. Uh, once we you know get out past the overpass, uh, you know the population drops, but the land size is still quite massive. So we have to take that in consideration when you plan out a uh, paramedic service for the whole province. There's approximately 900 paramedics and EMRs in the province. If we were going to have the appropriate uh, work-life balance, uh, overtime and on-call current circumstances, what that 900, what should that be for an appropriate staffing level? Yeah, that's one of the things that uh, we've been trying to figure out. And unfortunately, we're not able to get information from the government in regards to 
uh, number of calls that uh, are happening across the province, uh, how many of those are emergency versus transfers. So I would like to be able to give you a number on how many paramedics we truly need. We do need more because right now we are short staff. But unless we have that information from the government uh, to be able to truly uh, look at what the system uh, looks like right now at this moment and what it will in, uh, anticipate and what we anticipate it will look like in the future. Uh, unfortunately, we can't give a, a, an idea of what that is until we have those numbers in front of us from the government. Rodney, last one before we go. So you're also not only want a seat at the table and more communication and you understand what the system will look like, but you're also talking about uh, what the time frame is to finalize regulations inside the Emergency Health and Paramedic Services Act of 2018. What's outstanding so far as those regulations? are concerned every single regulation has not been uh, is that right? provided to us yet. yeah nothing at all so whenever that act came in uh, place in December 5th 2018 we were told uh, six months we should see those regulations or at least a draft version and we still have not seen anything at all uh, over the last four and a half years uh, it keeps getting pushed to the back burner and that just uh, we feel it uh, it's it's just an example of what a paramedicine is uh, on the provincial table uh, where it can easily be pushed to the back burner all the time uh, it's not at the forefront. It doesn't seem to be the importance of our government at this time. So, uh, again, we want this to be moved to the forefront, and uh, the importance of this uh, this act and these regulations uh, should have been done four and a half or four years ago. It should have been done by, and here we are still waiting uh, four years later for this. So, um, yeah, it's just an example, like I said, of uh, the inimportance that the government uh, puts on this. I appreciate your time this morning, Rodney. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's Rodney Goody. He's the president of the Paramedic Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Every recommendation made in the 2018 legislation not fully implemented, so says Rodney. <laughs> Let's take a break. Leonard, appreciate your patience, sir. He wants to talk about the fishery after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. is Open Line on VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Leonard, you're on the air. Line number one, Leonard, you're on the air. Fonce, you want to check his pot? We'll see what we can do with Leonard. Are you still there, sir? I'll put him on hold. Fonce, you can see if you can get him sorted out. What's on three? Let's go to line number, uh, line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah. Yes, hello? Hello. Uh, yes, Patty. Yes. Yes, hi. This is Juan of uh, of Juan and Brenda over in Carbonair. Okay, welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Uh, yes, uh, I'll see. Just a quick um, uh, I'll see update. We're, we're getting the hang of um, uh, being snowbirds. I'm calling you from North Carolina. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll be back up the first week in April. But um, it, it seems like almost every other day when I listen to the show, there's the issue of health care coming up, um, you know, which is an unfortunate issue. I don't know um, exactly what the answers are, but one of them might be um, more of an emphasis on preventive care and, um, you know, especially diet. Um, I know there was a big... Um, uh, you know, dust up about the uh, tax on on the soft drinks and all that. But, you know, um, I think we should try to be uh, more aware of what we're eating and drinking. 
um, because uh, that perhaps, you know, can do a little bit, you know, to bring down the, you know, the need for, um, uh, I mean, doctor care, especially with chronic illnesses, you know, that are oftentimes tied to diet um, uh, and intake of, uh, you know, soft drinks and alcohol. But other than that, I think the province is just trying to do the very best they can with a very, very difficult, um, you know, situation. Um, I wish there were uh, there were easier answers, but I just don't have any right now. So I don't know if anybody does, but, you know, the issue regarding preventative medicine is obviously a very real conversation that gets left behind uh, far too often. There is lots of talk uh, about that inside of the health accord because they talk very clearly about the social determinants of health and what that might mean for especially more chronic illnesses of which we lead the league uh, in this province and a lot of that space with the uh, lifestyle and diet and what have you i'm not preaching because i'm the furthest thing from perfect on either of those fronts but you know those are the long-term changes that individuals and society needs to entertain to help curb some healthcare spending and help curb the interaction rates with the healthcare system. So there's no easy answers available to this. If there was, we'd have it, we'd have it figured out because we spend lots of money on healthcare. The healthcare outcomes don't keep up with the amount of money we spend. But if we look at who you are, man or woman, level of education, the amount of money coming in the door, your diet, your sedentary lifestyle, or your active lifestyle, it all plays a role in how often you interact with the healthcare system. Of course, you're 100% right. Yeah, and um, I'm not really familiar. Perhaps you know this much better than I do, but, um, you know, are there like public service announcements, you know, from the from the provincial or the federal government on a regular basis? Um at least um, to try to educate people, say like when they, uh, eating of fried foods, drinking of soft drinks, and even the, the drinking of alcohol, because I'm not aware of any such announcements, you know, either on, on your station or on the local TV stations. Well, I think there's a more, more a very recent report that came out about alcohol consumption and some of the changes for recommendations of how frequently, how much people should be drinking. But uh, again, we do a fair bit of that in this province, and our diet probably, if, for instance, if you look at other parts of the country where they have mu much different healthcare outcomes and the prevalence of chronic illness, a lot of that really boils back down to the fundamentals of your lifestyle. It does. And again, please know this to be sure, listener, I am not telling you that you should do X, Y, and Z. We all know what's the right and wrongs here. We all know what moderation means. But I admit I have bad habits on all those fronts as well. So, you know, collectively, uh, ultimately, I'm most responsible for my health. Unless it's a genetic issue, then it's really up to me how I think, behave, and act as to how healthy I will be or how unhealthy I'll be. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So, anyway, we look forward um, to the return uh, up there and especially to say hi to the goats and the pony that live up the street <laughs> from us. <laughs> I appreciate this. Safe travels, Juan. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you know, we certainly have shifted focus very quickly. Like even these collaborative care teams or family care teams, I think that's what we're calling them now, whatever you want to call them. They are clearly pointed to in a better approach to primary care. The health accord is not ideal or perfect for every circumstance for every individual. I've heard lots of negative pushback against it. But very clearly in it is, and this is what we don't do enough of, is if we talk about how much money government spends, 
whether it be municipally, provincially, or federally. The most expensive line items are always the exact same thing. It's if you're in jail or if you're in hospital. And the more we do to keep people out of either or is in not only society's best interest for our public safety and everything else, but the financial ramifications are huge. So the starting point of healthcare, of course, it's going to be today's uh, incentives for doctors and uh, nurses and LPNs and nurse practitioners, uh, scope of practice for pharmacists and all the way up and down the line. That's great. But if we don't figure out those social determinants of health, we'll simply be paying people working in the system more and more and not necessarily keeping more and more of us out of the system. Let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president at NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent, sir. How about you? I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. Fair ball. Just before we get into the situation surrounding LPNs in the province, we now know via news release coming from your organization that the workers at Bishop's Garden Senior Living Center have now joined the ranks of NAEP. That represents nearly 50 frontline workers. Specifically, how do things like that unfold? Does the union approach the workers? Do the workers approach the unions? Uh, talk us through the process. The process, Patty, depending on the site, can be vary. Uh, in many cases, where a group of workers will approach a union, this particular case, NAEP, uh, a look at them to have a collective voice in their workplace. So that's really what unfolds here. And we have representatives now in a number of these uh, personal care home settings. It's a growing sector in the province, and many of the workers there look for a collective voice because it's challenging workplaces uh, at the best of times. So really, like, it's really complicated with the legislation we have here in the province um, that the labor movement lobbied for. Uh, I've always jokingly said it's easier to become become government than it is actually to gain that collective voice. So a very challenging process. A lot of work goes into it, uh, but we certainly welcome this group of workers that join now some other personal care homes that we represent uh, in the metro region and on the west coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. So given the representation that NAEP has for people working in personal care settings and other senior care settings, what, do you have an opportunity to present to the review panel for long-term care and for personal care homes? Because the worker's voice also has to be included in the review versus simply what's going on with patients and families. Absolutely. That's a piece of work that we're taking quite seriously. Uh, we will be having input. Actually, we're talking about similar to what we just said our correctional officers, having a professional person uh, actually do a piece of work for us uh, that will talk about what we need to do. Uh, we've certainly been trying to work with government and the four re former regional authorities and the current one trying to change things. Because it, one thing is clear, what we've been doing is not working. Uh, so we can't keep repeating uh, the past. So we have to look at probably doing some things different, uh, everything from the skill mix in these long-term care facilities, uh, the recognition of people in there. So number one, the people entrusted in care uh, receives the level of care, safe care, and the people that work there are recognized for the work that they do and are appropriately staffed facilities. So short answer, yeah, we'll absolutely be uh, being involved, and we will have a person actually completing the document for us that we will present uh, that we believe is some of the solutions that we have to explore uh, collaboratively with the, 
the employer and government. Okay, let's move off of the LPNs because was the circumstance here about, you know, the conversations we're having with LPNs being trained in this province and prospects for their employment after graduation offers they've been made? The prospect for LPNs here in the province is extremely high. Actually, there is a critical shortage of licensed practical nurses, and actually they're leading to, the critical shortage is leading to a number of beds in our long-term care facilities not being able to be opened. So what I'm hearing is a lot of students are being offered job opportunities in long-term care. The reason is, Patty, that's where the acute critical urgent shortages. If you look at many of our acute care sites, public health, community health, they are pretty well well staffed to a degree with licensed practical nurses in that area. But in long-term care, I'll just give you one facility here in St. John's right now, for example, PVT in Pleasantville, probably one of the largest long-term care facilities in Newfoundland, Labrador. They have around 100 vacancies. Uh, they actually have units they cannot open because they do not have a sufficient number of licensed practical nurses. So they're out there now, uh, employers offering positions to graduating classes, and I would suggest the vast majority of positions permanent full-time. You can walk in there next Monday if you wanted to and have a permanent full-time job in the long-term care. It is a challenging setting, but I assure you it is rewarding work. Uh, and the work there, when fully staffed, there's not the issues that you're hearing of today. So we're certainly hoping that people will look at a career in long-term care. There's opportunity to advance down the road if you want to. But I'd certainly encourage any LPN student, any PCA student that's out there to look at long-term care as a viable option. Uh, you talk to most at work there. It is very rewarding work when you can eat, help people that have contributed to this province, Newfoundland, Labrador, for decades uh, live a comfortable life dependent on your care. So that's why you're in from some students. There's not a lot of job offers in acute or public or community because the vacancy rate is just not there. But I suggest just one facility, and that repeats itself, Patty, right across the entire province of long-term care. There are hundreds of vacancies and they need to be filled in order to open these beds that are closed, and that will free up our acute care beds because, again, in the city, I think there's 87 and 97 acute care beds tied up because long-term care beds can't open because we don't have the licensed practical nurses uh, to fill those roles in those facilities. How many uh, LPNs are we training per year in the province? The numbers increase. I wish they would have done it earlier. We set up a joint committee with government back during the pandemic uh, where the, the College of North Atlantic, is a, actually they added colleges where there wasn't seats. The numbers now are still, in my opinion, not sufficient. We are training upwards of 300. Uh, but if we get 300 this year and 300 next year, we're still going to have a shortage. Uh, and it's a vicious cycle. It's, in order to train people, you've got to free up more people to train them, which causes a shortage then in some of our acute care facilities. So it's really challenging, uh, but there has been expansion of seats. We're saying there need, needs to be a further expansion of seats, at least in the interim. And I think I've heard maybe yourself, in, like if you train people, we've certainly said it, if you have a college in St. Anthony that's trained licensed practical nurses, paramedics, PCAs, and people in the area can actually train there, they're more apt to stay in their areas, whether that be true for Labrador or other rural communities. So that's what we've advocated, advocated for. That's actually happened because uh, some of these colleges that didn't have LPN seats or PCA seats, they've actually added them now. 
now. Uh, and what we're trying to have government and regional health authorities go into our high schools now, talk to young people, talk about the value that they can add and these programs that are available, that, that they can get permanent full-time jobs the moment they graduate right in their own area, right in their own communities. And like I said, uh, the seats increased for LPN probably about 30% in the last 18 months. Uh, but I would suggest that could increase by another 20% at least for the next two years uh, to meet the demand that we have here right in our own province. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, do the LPNs that you represent have any thoughts on these new collaborative care clinics or family care clinics, whatever we're choosing to call them these days? Because the healthcare professionals I speak to, they say conceptually, excellent idea. It all boils down to where the human resources come from. What are your LPNs saying? Absolutely the same thing. It's where the resources come from because every time you open something, uh, great the bricks and mortar, but you better have a plan to be able to put the staff in. Because what the, this will have multiple disparities. So you will have licensed practical nurses. You will have practical nurses and registered nurses. We're even saying that when you go in there and understand, uh, you should be able, most often, a doctor orders blood work. So without having to leave that building, uh, you should be able to get blood drawn. Uh, you're often suggested to go see a dietitian. So why? have to drive to another community or across town. So we've actually talked to health community services and basically saying these clinics, that's where they came to the health court. We sat there. They are a great idea. Uh, the vast majority of healthcare workers support them. Uh, you just got to have the resources in there because basically you should be able to go into one of these family care clinics. Uh, if you see your family physician, if you don't need to see them, you may need to see a nurse practitioner. And maybe a case could even see the diabetic nurse or a dietitian. So the concept, once it is fully in place, uh, I think would benefit the people and the resources in there. That's the big piece. We put, have to put the proper resources in there. Uh, and it is a collaborative team that works together just as they do in other facilities. So uh, a wider range of healthcare workers. Appreciate the time, Sorny Jerry. Greatly appreciate it, Patty. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Jerry Earl, president at NAPE. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty Daly. Morning to you. Yes, uh, I've been watching, uh, listened to your show a few times over the years, but I've never actually been on uh, your uh, radio show, so this is my uh, first time. So how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for making the time for the show. Tom, uh, what's on your mind? Um, my name's Tom Anderson, and I'm from the uh, southwest coast of Newfoundland, Port of Basque area. I live in a small community called uh, Cape Ray. Um, the reason why I'm calling is um, I'm a former member of the Canadian Armed Forces. I... Um, I served two tours overseas back in the early 1990s over in the Balkans, uh, Yugos, uh, former Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. as a United Nations peacekeeper. <clears throat> um, during my second tour, um, I drove over a landmine, and I lost uh, both my legs below the knee, open fracture to my left hand, and severe lacerations uh, to my left eye. So the reason why I'm calling is I want everybody to know, the public to know, how the government is uh, treating our veterans and how the veterans, you know, have to fight uh, tooth and nail, so to speak, to get the services that they deserve and are entitled to. Uh, treatment of veterans has long been a major league concern. We've done a very poor job. Uh, 
taking care of veterans when they come home. So we appreciate your service, and I wish that appreciation was reflected beyond words by governments and resulted in actual actions. So whether it be the number of veterans you know who are homeless, number of veterans that are incarcerated, the number of veterans who have uh, PTSD and not getting the timely uh, treatment they need, the amount of paper warfare that is required for veterans to fight the good fight is completely unnecessary. And then you add to it, even things like statements coming from uh, federal ministers, things like, you know, we can't afford to do more. Well, we certainly should. I, I certainly agree with you 100, 100% there, uh, Mr. Daly. Um, I'll tell you a story now. Um, last week, I had to travel up to Halifax, Nova Scotia mm-hmm. for high surgery. I had to get a laser diode surgery done on my left eye, which was service-related from, uh, from the landmine explosion 30 years ago. Um, so anyway, when I walked off the plane, as soon as the plane touched down in Halifax, I made three or four steps off the plane. I was still in the tunnel that the plane was attached to, and my left, my right prosthetic leg broke off. Okay? So I called the clinic here in Stephenville, Newfoundland, to see if my prosthesis guy, you know, could call up to Halifax at the Halifax Rehabilitation Center and see if he can, you know, pull a few strings and squeeze me in, see if he can fix my leg. So the guy called the Halifax Rehabilitation Center, and he said that I would, I should receive a call from them. Anyway, I was up there for a week, and I never did receive a call. So my beef is, this is the same thing that happened to me two years ago, when I went up to the London, Ontario Hospital, um, Parkwood Institute, I think it was called. Now, this is at Veterans Hospital because I was having trouble with my right, with my leg. I went to the hospital, checked in, and uh, the prosthesis come in, covered doctors and nurses, and they suggested, you know, what type of leg that I should get, but they would not make a leg for me. And the reason being, because I put a complaint into the ombudsman, and the response that I got back was that every province is under their own health care system. They said that uh, every province was under their own jurisdiction. So I said to the ombudsman, what are veterans on the island of Newfoundland and Labrador supposed to do? We don't have a veterans hospital as such. So this twice now does have happened to me. I had to go outside of the province, and I got turned down because I was not a permanent resident of Ontario. And last week, same thing. I'm assuming the reason why the Halifax Rehabilitation Center never called me was because I was not a permanent resident of Nova Scotia. So, like, when I was in the Canadian Armed Forces, when I was an active member you're considered a resident in every province. But when you get injured and you got to get medically released from the Canadian Armed Forces, you're just a number on a computer, and the government wants to wash their hands away from you, and they don't want nothing to talk to do with you. So that is my beef about the government to this day. And I challenge any MP, federal or provincial, the reason why... I mean, this is happening to me and other veterans across Canada. So, like, 
my suggestion would be why can't our our country say be divided into regions like have a Atlantic region, a central region, and a western region. That way if any veteran like myself or any other veteran gotta leave the province of Newfoundland and Labrador to travel outside to go to another province and if anything should happen to them, they should be looked after. So and that is why I'm calling to let the public know how I have been treated in the last 30 years um, by the government. And, Patty, it seems to me it doesn't matter if it's the Liberal government, the NDP government, or the PCs. Don't matter what color of the party it is. Seems like each party does not want to deal with veterans. Bottom line. When we have a veterans affair issue, it shouldn't matter what province you live in, what province you're visiting for treatment. It's all should be covered under a national approach because you're a member of the national armed forces, the Canadian armed forces. I appreciate your time and your service, Tom. Thank you for this this morning, and please do call again. I certainly will. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Uh, let's take a uh, final break of the morning. Talk away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, it is amazing to, uh, to me to see all of the partisan cheerleading about who is or who is not going to testify in front of one parliamentary committee or another. And we know that. The Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, will indeed uh, testify for a couple hours sometime before the 14th of April, which is a good thing, as she absolutely should do that. I am a little bit confused by a motion that was voted down by the Conservative Party, though, all the same. So we absolutely do need to know exactly what has gone on in the last couple of elections, and let's not pretend that it only began in 2019 with foreign bad actors trying to be involved in some form in federal elections. But there was a motion yesterday to include... Not only China, but Russia, India, and others. And I would suggest the United States belongs on that uh, list of countries that might be noodling around inside our elections, which they don't belong in at all. But it was voted down. Apparently, I'm told, it's just obfuscation. Because if you add other countries beyond China, then you're, I guess, watering down the concerns that people have with the current state of affairs and the reports that have been leaked, not verified from CSIS about Chinese uh, support for some 11 candidates, who they are, where they are. We've only heard one name at this moment in time. But why wouldn't we look at foreign interference in total? I mean, it seems to me that if your concern, and it is mine, is about the safety and the protection and the integrity of our federal elections, why would that only be resting on one country when we know full well there's a handful that are happily participating in shagging around inside. And that doesn't mean they're in, we don't use voting machines and that kind of stuff, so we're not talking about that level of interference. But we are talking about whether it be monies funneled through individuals that are coming from elsewhere and or some online activity and propaganda or mis- or disinformation that is part of the conversation. Why don't we look at it all? I don't know what the downside is to that. Will I take this one quick, Fonts, before I run out of time? Okay, let's go to line number one. Do I have a name or am I going caller? Okay, okay there we go. Leonard, you're on the air. Uh, I'm talking about, about uh, the what's named? Uh, Fishery. 
crab and this and that's what's going on here, but uh, uh, you hear me? I can hear you. Go ahead. You only have a couple of minutes, so what's on your mind, Leonard? Yeah, I know, but uh, Royal, Royal Greenland is running the fish fish in Newfoundland, so is uh, Chess Penny that owns uh, Ocean, Ocean, Ocean Fish Fish. He owns uh, OCI. Right. Well, that'd be the Sullivans, yeah. Uh, that'd be the Sullivans. And uh, we got the Barry Sissies. They're running Newfoundland. They're running all the people. And whatever the whatever the money people Newfoundland got, they're uh, sucked in with them and that's it. They're running. But I'll tell you, know, like I said, a lot of store, a lot, of, a lot of other paddy boy. But but uh, I'm very sick of the show now, and I. Uh, I can tell you a lot of more stories, Paddy, Paddy, for you, because they put me on for tomorrow, maybe. Anybody? Okay, well, let's give that a shot. But I don't think there's any dispute. We can give that a shot, yes. There's no dispute that some big companies have a lot of clout. And what that translates to, uh, I guess there's a fair conversation to be had there. But if you want to try again another day, Leonard, you're welcome to do that. But we got we got, we got, the, we got the big fishies there, uh, like, the, like the royal... Uh, down down and we got the Beta Bird and the Ocean uh, Quinlans and all them. They're all they're all sucked in and all this. We gotta get we gotta get into their we gotta get into their products and you're the only man can do it, Patty. Well I don't know what I can do, but I know the Quinlans sold most of their interest, uh uh the whole Quincy deal that went down. With Royal Greenland and other companies, I think the conversation is about what percentage of ownership that comes from foreign companies, I mean, because Royal Greenland is a Greenland company, how much of that business should be owned by companies like for uh, Royal Greenland? Because the last we go around... Now, 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 now the crabbers are bad. Now we got Daly Brothers from the O'Donnell's in place. They're trying to squeeze it again. I remember them. I fish for all these people. Today. I fish for all these people, buddy. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk to you tomorrow, Madonna. Okay, buddy. All the best. Thank you, Freddie. You have a good day, Freddie. You too, Leonard. Bye-bye. All right, uh, just before we're out of time, a reminder to stick with us, of course, for the 12 o'clock news. And then at 1 o'clock this afternoon, live from the Avalon Mall, we do indeed have our annual Radiothon with Ronald McDonald House Charities. We know the work they do, the importance of. So please, if you have the capacity and the wherewithal to make a donation, you can do that with us this afternoon. All right, good show today. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.